Ugly and Blade Palace, and he also has a podcast called Raised on Rhythm. You got it. I'm here with Nate, Nate Lewis. Lewis. Blake, thank you for having me on, man. Honored to be here. Of course. So yeah, I recently just met you through a Third Wheel Podcast Studios. Yeah, shout, shout out. out to Third Wheel. <laughs> yeah, already. So that's actually a big step of coming to the studio to record your podcast. So I, uh, I did my podcast for like two, like. A year and a half without having like a full podcast studio like i yeah. had studio spaces where i had to bring my own equipment yeah but yeah. i just i can't even imagine like how further ahead my podcast would have been with an actual studio with everything in place so how did you get to have your podcast and how did you learn about third wheel podcast studios you know what was interesting is when I first started doing Raised on Rhythm about a year ago, I actually had a bunch of my gear that was sitting around, and I used to go to band's practice spaces when I first started, and I would just set up all mobile wherever yeah. they were at. And it was a big advantage because, you know, with COVID and stuff, it made it complicated with studios. So I would just tell bands, like, if you got a gar- garage, warehouse, I'll go there, set up where you're at, and we'll just record the whole thing in there. But, you know, I had mics, and I you know knew enough about audio production and stuff like that. I could do all the production work myself. So... I looked at it as kind of an adventure, mm. you know, I, I would just go to all these, you know, random like warehouse spaces, rehearsal spots, like run down. I didn't, I didn't care, you know, like I just go wherever, but that was kind of the goal when I started the podcast was to capture these conversations and talk to musicians and actually give us a forum, a platform where we could talk the way we normally talk to each other outside venues. And this <laughs> was, know? uh, did this start during the pandemic or did you have a podcast before that? This was uh, September 6, 2020 was when the first episode of Raised on Rhythm came out. Ooh. And, you know, I'd been told prior to that, like I'd been told, you know, you have a radio voice, you know, a podcast voice. You, know, I, I didn't really want to do anything with that because I just sort of felt like it was a little cliche, like a white dude in his 30s starting a <laughs> podcast. You know what I mean? Like I so that was, you know, all pre COVID, pre pandemic. Um, and I had just moved to Seattle at the beginning of 2018. Oh, Jan- Where are you from? I grew up in Miami, Florida. There's oh, some wild boys out there. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. I mean, I grew up in the Miami area. My family moved there when I was about three years old. Uh, I went to school in Tallahassee, Florida. I actually ended up living in Tallahassee for about seven years total. There we go. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in political science from FSU that I, I don't really do anything with. <laughs> And uh, after Tallahassee, I had a gig in Atlanta, Georgia. I uh, lived up there for about a year and a half. For music or just uh, yeah, work? Yeah, this, this was a professional drumming gig. I used to play drums at a place called the Dark Horse Tavern for a live band karaoke night. Uh, and it was called Metal Sum Incorporated. So if you're not familiar with live band karaoke, think karaoke, but you get to sing with an actual band that knows like 150 songs. And you just come up on That's stage. Crazy. They're your personal jukebox, basically. Basically, I I thought it was punk rock as hell. I loved it. You know, I loved the idea. And they'd been doing it a long time before I got there. I just happened to be living in Atlanta. At that point, I kind of was looking for a gig. And I was like, oh, yeah, I could do this. So I kind of got that on a fluke. And um, I was there. Shout out to my old boss, Curtis Clark, Jess, everybody that manages the Dark Horse Tavern in Atlanta. Um, I was there for about a year. I played drums there. But at the time, I had already known my uh, bandmates in Blade Palace 
because we had all met when we were still living in Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. You know, they were living there, even though Elliot and Rob, my bandmates, they're from Jacksonville, Florida originally, but we all found ourselves in Tallahassee. One by one, Elliot was the first of us to kind of move out here some years ago. And then Rob followed him about a year after that. This was when I was in Atlanta at that point, but mm-hmm. I kept in touch with both of them. And I knew they were great songwriters, you know, and me and Rob had actually been in a band in Tallahassee before. So when they were out here, I was just like, you know, have you found a drummer yet? You found a drummer yet? We talk every now and then. Mm -hmm. And after about a year back and forth like that, I was like, dude, I just need to move out here and we need to do this. So, you know, I I gave my notice on the gig in Atlanta, uh, packed up all my gear in a pod, had it shipped out here and threw a suitcase full of clothes in my (laughs) Toyota and and drove from Atlanta to Seattle. January 31st, 2018 is when I got to the Seattle city limits and I've been here ever since doing my thing. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So how long have you been professionally just doing music or being able to make a living off music? On and off since I was about 14. Um, wow. Some, now there, some years have been, you know, more full in that way than others. Like I've always done other stuff to make money too. Like I've worked in restaurants, warehouses, um, driven Uber and Lyft, you know, you name it. I've, I've done plenty of odd jobs on the side. I've al- always have. I think it kind of like frees me up to mm-hmm. play the music that I want the way I want to play with the people who I like, love playing with it. That's really what I, you know, value first and foremost. So I did my first professional gig when I was about 14. I played drums in a classic rock cover band in uh, Hollywood, Florida, which is like between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. They didn't know I was 14 when they hired me for this. I found it on, it was sort of like the equivalent of Craigslist back then. (laughs) It's on the internet, like my dad's computer. And they um, they found out I was 14, you know, when I showed up to the gig because my dad had to drive me because I didn't have a driver's license yet, you know, but my dad drove me out. I had, um, you know, my drums and in Florida, like the law, or at least at that time, basically said that, you know, if you're under 21, you could be in the bar as long as you're there to do like an entertainment job or something like a professional entertainer, mm-hmm. you know, as long as it's not like a adult strip club, you know, establishment, <laughs> something like that, obviously, you know. So I would do the gig and I would, during the set breaks, obviously I couldn't hang out at the bar. I'd have to go outside. You know, my dad would be outside and everything like that. And we played classic rock covers for, you know, probably maybe like five people on a Sunday night. You know, wow. and I, I, the band, you know, I made like 20 bucks and it was the best $20 I ever made. <laughs> you know, it was just like, I'm staring at it like, it's possible. <laughs> you know, so on and off ever since, you know, I've, I've done cover gigs as a professional drummer, but I also played just in original bands too. Mm-hmm. Um, just playing original music. When I was a teenager, I used to play a lot of pop punk and death metal. This okay. was back in the early 2000s. And later on, I kind of, um, you know, evolved more. Like I really got into more music that had a lot of dynamics in it. So, you know, a lot of the indie rock that was happening in the late 2000s, you know, early 2010s, if that's a word. Yeah, <laughs> I think really that's right. the new thing. Is that the, the new thing? Two, okay. 2010 era. As long as I'm correct with it. So, you know, mm-hmm. when I was living in Tallahassee, I started um, playing music again. I played at a place called Open Mic Night at the Warehouse. It's no longer around, but it was an open mic night. I used to go out there every Wednesday night and do a drum solo mm-hmm. for about four and a half years. Can you make, I'm I'm, I'm still so new to sure. bands. Yeah. Can, can, can a band member make it solely off just being a cover artist for the rest of your life? Or like, is that reach a limit? When I lived in Atlanta, I essentially made the equivalent of a full-time income doing it. I mean, it wasn't a ton of money, but it was enough to where like, I, like I could pay my rent need off that mm-hmm. um, when I was playing out there. Cause they were doing it five nights a week at that bar. Um, and it was popular, especially on the weekends. There was a line out the door to get into the place. You know, I'm sure there yeah. still is, you know, um, it was a hit, you know, people would come out and, and for me as a drummer, you know, that's the kind of gig where you're not, 
in the spotlight. You know, you're there as a functionary to do a job to, you know, learn these songs and play. It's not like people are coming out like, oh, I'm coming here to see like Nate Lewis, the drummer mm. or something like that. Maybe a few. But, you it, know. It's called like um, yeah. 70s night or something. And you just come to play. You listen to that time music or what do they people expect? So at Metal Sun, when they first started, it was actually all 80s hair metal because this oh, was okay. 2003. So it was like a lot of Poison, White Snake, Motley Crue, which I actually had to learn when I got there because yeah. by the time I got there in 20 uh, late 2016 17 it was they had added a lot of blink 182 the killers you know stuff that you know it was like the next era coming up mm-hmm. i had to struggle to learn motley crew you know white mm-hmm. snake cuz like i wasn't around for that era my boss was my boss used to swear i was on cocaine during those gigs because i grew up playing punk rock and i used to rush so bad when i was playing drums to like some of the 80s heavy metal stuff and in my boss's mind the only way anybody could rush that bad on a song is if they were high on blood <laughs> it took me like 6 months to just be like i don't do that stuff like this is just like i grew up playing blink 182 i'm used to like playing every song 20 bpm you know whatever faster right. live than you know than it is on the record i mean that's just punk rock you know that's that's so yeah what I've noticed with older hip hop artists, yeah, yeah, you can actually like sometimes there's a age difference where like the new generation doesn't want to mess with like, the older generation. Sure, but when the older generation does have something to offer, like a Jay Z, mm. those younger artists need that Jay Z. But when it comes yeah. to bands, yeah. does a younger band need an older band? Like, do bands collab in that way, or what can a younger band get out of a newer band, like from an older band? I think you could definitely learn things. You know, and and you have to be ready to learn from all different kinds of people, all different backgrounds. You know, I mean, you can learn something from anybody. You know, if you're willing to listen. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, for me doing a gig like that, you know, those kind of old school gigs, you know, where you'd really you'd be on stage for like three hours because you were like the hired music at the bar. Like what mm-hmm. DJs do now is what bands did back then, mm-hmm. where it's like. You know, and it's not just you playing your original music. You know, you might be playing covers or, you know, maybe a little mix of both or just jamming, improving. There used to be a lot more gigs like that for working musicians because the idea of a, of a nightclub, you know, having like a DJ or something, you know, spinning like hip hop or pop, EDM, whatever it was. I grew up in Miami, which was maybe like 10 years ahead of the curve on that one, right, like right. in the 90s. So even then I sort of saw the future a little bit, I think, with that, or I saw what was coming. Um, but now, you know, after like, especially I remember after like 2010 or 2011, there was like a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was living in Tallahassee and all of a sudden a whole bunch of nightclubs, like right in the, the uh, December 2011, a whole bunch of clubs there that used to be like Floyd's um, where, where bands would play and the engine room, they all shut down in the same month. And when they reopened a few months later, a lot of them were rebranded um, into EDM venues. Oh, shit. And that was the first time in my life. It was crazy because, like, I remember all of a sudden, like, white college frat dudes, right? You know, or like, oh, we're going to see, like, Juicy J tonight or, like, Lil Wayne. I'm like... She didn't tell me like going oh, like Dave Matthews or like Bonzo. It was just, it was just weird to me because I grew up in Miami, so right. of course it's like part of the course down there. But it's like Tallahassee. I was like, okay, this is like it's interesting. You know, it's just a shift in the whole culture. You know, um, so getting back to your question, I digress a little bit, but yeah, there's there's all sorts of things that you can learn. I think from bands that really had to go through an era where you had to be a very solid live performer. Um, because you're doing this stuff multiple nights and people have a very high standard, you know, for what a band should be, you know, or what they expect from a band. Whereas mm-hmm. as now, I think it's a little, especially with all original shows, you know, it's a little bit looser. You can kind of get on stage and, and people sort of give you their that time. They might not be into what you're doing, but, right. 
know, they're a little more, they'll let you get loose with it. Whereas like, you know, maybe if you were like a working bar band, you know, if you couldn't keep a solid two and four all night mm-hmm. and if you're fucking up, it's like, that was a no go, man. Cause, cause if, if the audience doesn't trust you to give them a steady beat and yeah. a steady rhythm, they're not going to want to dance. Yeah. And if they're not going to want to dance, you got a problem. <laughs> like people know that's so like just it's human nature. Like we yeah. know if something's on beat or off. Beat. Exactly. That's so crazy. And you, you know, it's crazy. Like what affects your perception with that too. I mean, substances do play into that too. Okay. Um, really? You know, and yeah, because like when not, and again, I don't advocate for this necessarily, <laughs> um, but you know, when you're on a substance that puts you more in touch with reality, you know, say like an upper, like cocaine or amphetamines or things like that, you're more in touch with rhythmic fluctuations, Oh gosh! you know? So when you hear music coming out and if the beats like off by a little bit or something like that, or it's like, it's kind of human, it's a lot more jarring to you. Mm-hmm. And this is why with like quantization and electronic music yeah. and things like that, why that, you know, people that are into that experience, yeah. you know, tend to be more drawn to that kind of music uh, because they, you know, they gravitate to that very calculated, you know, quantized uh, kind of groove like that. Now, if you want to enjoy a rock and roll show on yeah, the yeah. other hand, <laughs> um, get a couple whiskey Red Bulls in you or something like that, because then, you know, if you have some alcohol in your system, how that affects your perception, if the rhythm is kind of like, you know, it's a little like herky jerky or something yeah. like that, you're more forgiving of it. Because your brain isn't as like, your brain is like slower to react, you know? So it's like, that's why you say like, we'll sound a lot better if you get a couple drinks. <laughs> Straight up. Like, yeah. Do bands, or at least when hip hop first started and became mainstream, do bands look down on hip hop? Absolutely. Mm. But also, you know, jazz musicians look down on rock bands. And classical musicians look down on jazz musicians. That paradigm, that's always the same. If you go back mm-hmm. in the history of music, it's like every generation prior always thought the next generation's music was shit or it just wasn't up to the standard you know, that the previous generation was. But it just evolves. That's just human expression. You know, objectively, I don't really look at it as like when anything's like better or worse. It's just it's a different time. It's a different era. And people have different sensibilities because if something's already been done to death before, you know, it's not going to hit people the same way if somebody else does it after that. Right. You know, and if you're doing something that's totally out there and original, even if it's a little rough around the edges, like sometimes people connect with that. That was hip hop for a while. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And if, you know, one thing that hip hop really did to popular music was when you started to have sampling and and drum machines come along, particularly, you know, the the 808s and the 80s and things like that, mm-hmm. the stuff that Sir Mix-a-Lot was using in his early heyday, you know, that really started to quantize groove and get people used to that idea of, like, grooving to a machine. Mm-hmm. And what happened was when digital editing came along and that merged with that, all of a sudden now for rock bands even, they would record drums and they would go back and, like, line up every hit mm. to be perfect because the human ear was adapted to that even if the sonic aesthetic was very different in rock and roll you know it sort of forced that shift in in the sonic paradigm like if you think about hip-hop you know you could take a sample of a perfect drum hit for instance right right? and you could eq it up so it's nice and thumping you know bass wise and the thing about big bass frequencies like that is if they're off time by even just a little bit right it's going to jar you like really bad Mm -hmm. when you're listening to it so if you listen to a lot of rock and roll records, especially like older ones, you know, from the 60s and 70s, you notice how they kind of sound like thin, you know, in, in the drums and stuff. And it was live, so it was never completely on beat. Exactly, you know, exactly. Or sometimes they would play to clicks, you know, back mm-hmm. then. That's a whole other subject. But, you know, when you had the ability all of a sudden to put, you know, bass frequencies perfectly in time, 
it just elevated the standard for the rest of basically all of music, you know, rock and roll, pop, everything like that, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was a mixed blessing because if you have to edit a record to death that much, you know, to get it to sound a certain way, what happens when the band goes out and plays live and it sounds like totally different? People Mm -hmm. feel kind of deceived at that point, you know? Dude, that's what people deal with hip hop still. Like people like, you're never going to get the sure. same experience when you're listening to hip hop in your headphones versus if you're listening to it live. Absolutely. I always compare it to like if you were writing a novel on Microsoft Word, for instance, versus if you gave somebody a typewriter and a bunch of speed and you're just like, go. Mm. That would change how you would write. Right. For sure. Because if you if all you could do is go on a typewriter, you'd probably stick to words that you knew better. Mm. You know, you wouldn't have autocorrect. You couldn't go back and correct anything. You have to stay very in the moment. And. Again, one isn't necessarily, you know, at the end of the day, you listen to a record and it's either a good record or it's not. Doesn't really matter how you got there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so that's digital editing really brought things to a different point with rock and roll. And it happened even in the days of analog tape, too. I mean, that would happen where you'd have to have a band record to analog tape and then to make a chorus more consistent, an engineer would have to take a razor blade and splice the tape. And get you're an audio nerd, so you probably know a little bit about this. Yeah, Yeah. You know, like you'd move a section of tape here and there to like fix a bad hit. And it wasn't the kind of stuff that a local band, you know, just going into the studio for the first time might've had the budget to do. Maybe Mm -hmm. if you had like a Van Halen level budget for recording back then, it was the kind of stuff you could do then. So it's always been around. It's got a lot easier once you put it on a computer instead of having to sit there with the razor blade and tape, you know? God. Yeah. That's so interesting to me about like, I never really realized how hip hop could have helped with that. With the, yeah. So when, what about when, um, when like a remastered Beatles album or something sure. comes up, does that mean they're like quantizing or like changing the beat structure or just making it? Not necessarily because with the Beatles record, you're, you're talking about a finished master. So there's really no way to get in and like mm-hmm. go through individual stems and stuff like that, which, and I think frankly, I don't think fans would have it for a minute if they did something <laughs> like that to one of those records. Um, typically I think with that, you know, again, I can't, speak because I haven't, you know, been in on those mastering sessions, right. but a lot of times it will be bringing up the volume to more of a modern loudness standard. Okay. Um, which, you know, and that's the other interesting thing actually you mentioned with that, uh, because the other thing about it is with vinyl records, right? You can only cut a groove so deep in terms of bass frequencies before it starts to get to the point where it becomes problematic because the needle just skips out of the record. Right. So if you listen to records from 50, 60 years ago, you know that there's a lot less bass frequency information going on in there. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas now you could take a lot of those same records and if you just that was the big complaint with CDs when they first came out was that oh it just sounds like real tin and like thinny mm-hmm. and it's because you know, now you actually like you could have more bass frequencies in a record and mm-hmm. you didn't have to worry about like a needle skipping out of the vinyl or something like that. Yeah. So it changed. Yeah. That was another, you know, paradigm shift in physical media that just changed the whole sound of music, you know, in the 80s and 90s, especially. So what is your like wheelhouse when it comes to music? So you're a drummer. What else do you know how to do? Do you know how to mix and master it all? Or Yeah, I, I taught myself recording when I was about 19, 20, because in the bands I was playing in back then in Miami, you know, we were playing in like pop punk and hardcore bands and we didn't have like record industry down there. There was nobody that was going to come along and give you like a big budget to get in the studio necessarily. So my buddies and I, I mean, we had computers. This was like maybe 2005, five, six. Mm-hmm. 
And my buddy had a bootleg copy of Cool Edit Pro, which is the precursor to Adobe Audition. Okay. <laughs> we didn't have the money to get into a legit studio, but we knew how to download bootleg software off, you know, LimeWire <laughs> and shit like yes. that. You know? so that was kind of how it went. And, you know, we just, I had like a warehouse space, you know, that I had my drums in at the time. And my buddy in there, we used to just get Taco Bell and like stay up like all night, just like record, just record anything. You know, record a guitar amp, record ourselves talking smack into a mic and just try to figure out how to make it sound good. And YouTube was still in its infancy then. So we could learn a little bit from them, but it was still mm -hmm. like back then it was like websites and forums, like trying to Google if we didn't know how to work something. Right. Um, but that's really the whole reason I did that was because again, like we, you know, $60 an hour to get into a studio or something like that at the minimum, like we didn't have money for that, you mm -hmm. know, but we knew how, knew how computers work. So right. <laughs> start up with that. Um, as far as like, you know, drumming goes, I was educated as a jazz drummer when I was a kid. Um, I was actually, I was educated as a classical percussionist, so like marimba, xylophone, because back then, this was way before School of Rock, and none of my music teachers in elementary or middle school knew how to give me a grade for just playing the drum set. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, well, here's a xylophone. Now you can do your major scales, right? You know, so now I can give you a grade on that. Right. I was like, all right. It was kind of a blessing in disguise because that's how I learned about harmonies and chords and, you know, song structure, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Came in handy later on. As far as that other stuff, you know, I've tried to teach myself guitar four different times. I just, I just don't have it in me. I just don't have the interest. You know, I, I stick to drums. That was always what made sense. Do you think you need to be a certain age when you learn majority of like instruments? Or? No, not at all. Um, you know, I think it's just how much you put into it. And it's actually, it can be more advantageous if you start later on in life. Really? Um, because you actually know what you're trying to do then. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. Know, when I was growing up. I was just all over the place. I was, you know, I was doing classical and jazz and rock and like all this different stuff, you know, just trying to be as good of a drummer as I possibly could, hoping that, you know, once I got out of high school, like as long as I was just good enough or whatever, like the business side would take care of itself and I could eat as a professional musician. <laughs> got my ass handed to me on that one when I got out of high school, you know. What'd you learn? Like what did... The the main thing for me, it was really a question of of finding out what I wanted to do and what I really enjoyed doing, you know, because I'd had those times where, again, it's like I'd made a full-time living or a decent living playing drums, and I was miserable because I hated the music I was doing. you know, Because right, it wasn't it, yours. Or... It, it just, it just, whatever it was, it wasn't, you know, and sometimes you get like that on gigs too, you know, like a professional gig, not original band so much, but like, you know, you just play the same songs over and over and over again. And you go like that way for, you know, a year or two, three, even after a couple of years, you know, you can get in kind of a rut doing that. Like a cycle. So, I hate cycles personally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, you know, man. So you, you left, you graduated college. Yeah. And. What did you learn about the music industry at that point? Like, did you have any goals? Or like, did you think you were gonna? You got trained as a jazz drummer. Yeah. yeah. Did you think you were gonna get picked up by like a label? Or how does it work for like a, so, a drummer? What are the, what are their, what were your goals at the time? This tells you how old I am. Is that when you know when I was in elementary, middle school? It kind of goes back to watching my first drum teacher, Mike Salenza, great drum teacher, you know, and he was the only adult that I really saw in my life that seemed to be happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's like everybody else around me, like my parents were stressed, you know, my teachers were stressed and the yeah. principal definitely didn't want to be there. But it's <laughs> like, you know, the only like grown up that I really knew at that point that seemed to be like chilling and like doing his thing was my drum teacher. You know, and he wasn't <laughs> and he wasn't a rich person by any means. He was, you know, playing gigs and, and teaching drum lessons, just doing his thing. But he did what yeah. he enjoyed. And 
being around that kind of energy it was like, man, like, well, whatever that is, I want to be doing that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought about it. I was like, well, maybe I could get like a day job as a percussionist in a symphony orchestra. And then I could like play in rock bands at night. You know, mm. the, my my love of drumming came from watching Taylor Hawkins, who now plays in the Foo Fighters. But back then he played in Alanis Morissette's live band right before the Foo Fighters. And I saw the Alanis Morissette video for You Ought to Know. My family first got like MTV. I was like nine years old at the time. And they cut away to Taylor Hawkins playing drums for like, you know, two seconds. And Taylor's a very visual dude, you know, he's swinging his hair around, just going nuts. And I saw that when I was nine. I was just like, whatever that is. Like, yeah, I want to be doing that. That mm-hmm. looks cool. You know, that's what made me want to play drums. But did you see them as this like huge, like icon in the music industry? Or were you focused on just any type of living where you could just make music that was good for you? Or- uh, a little bit of both. I mean, I definitely had rock star dreams for sure, you mm-hmm. know, but I also like, Practically speaking, I would have been just as happy, I think, if I'd, you know, just had a regular gig like every week, just playing music. I really wanted to play. I didn't really wanted to teach. You know, I wasn't really interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so growing up, that was kind of the ambition. And then starting at about, you know, 98, 99, you know, when, when digital downloads came along and, you know, for the next 20 years, I feel like I, I just watched the music industry turn on its head over and yeah. over and over again, just evolve. Like every, anything I learned about it, two years would be worthless, you know, cause something changed up, but there was a new social media right. medium that came along and shifted the whole marketing culture. So I guess the only thing I've really learned in the last 20 years is just kind of how to adapt. And, and I don't think I've done a great job with it at, you know, at all times. I mean, it's been kind of haphazard. Thank God for my day jobs. I'll put it that way, you know, but, um, but just kind of, yeah. What's that like though? Is that like seeing something like change every couple of years? Is that exciting or is that scary or what is that? It's a little bit of both. I mean, it makes it very difficult to make long-term plans and set long-term goals for yourself because, mm-hmm. you know, people ask me like, oh, well, where do you want to, where do you see yourself in five years? I think. Right. I'm like, I just think about how different the world was period five years ago and, and industries that people saw themselves in that don't even exist anymore. And then whole new things that just came out of nowhere. And mm-hmm. like, you never even thought you could make a living doing that. Like, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, the idea of somebody, like making a living off of doing videos on the internet. It's just right. like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, <laughs> you couldn't even see it back then. It wasn't even a thing. You know, pretty much all the jobs or, you know, things that I had told my counselors or teachers or whoever, you know, that I wanted to do like back in 2003, four, stuff like that. Like, like symphony orchestra, nobody gets those fucking gigs these days. It's like the amount of people that come out of conservatory versus the amount of people that get actually get hired in a symphony, I think it's like like less than one percent. It's really minuscule. Mm, like the NFL, kind of, or yeah, worse, <laughs> probably. probably. I, I, no, I you know, that. um, but yeah, we we sort of it's it's kind of weird. I mean, I feel like society is a little dishonest in that way, where you know they said they st- we still have these schools set up. You can you know? be whatever you want, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we still you know send you to school and make you do all this homework and all this busy work under the idea that if you get through this, you can go do this and then people get out and like those jobs just aren't there for them. And it's like, yeah, kind of makes you disillusioned. I actually didn't go to college right off the bat. Oh. Um, because kind of because of that thinking, I was just like, well, how much am I going to pay for tuition at this place versus like, how much am I going to be making if I'm lucky to even get this gig at like a hundred dollars a night? This math doesn't even make sense. So like, right. just go out and do it. Like nobody on a gig has ever asked me for a degree in anything. You know, it's just like my, my qualification is like can you show up on time do the job and are you sober okay cool you got the gig <laughs> pretty much that's kind of how music is you know right. so why'd you go to college i went to college uh because at the time i had a scholarship 
uh, Bright Future Scholarship in Florida, if you know Florida. Um, Bright Future is basically like if your grades were decent enough in high school, you know, you get X amount of your tuition covered at a state university. And that scholarship actually was about to expire mm-hmm. in 2007. At the time, I was working as a, a warehouse person, basically. At so Bonson. how old were you at this point? I was 21. Wow. So and, two years off. No, yeah, three years almost. Yeah. I was making about just above minimum wage, working in the stock room at Barnes & Noble, and I got turned down for a quarter an hour raise. Oh. You know, it's just like one of those things where it's like, yeah, I think I'll give the college thing like one more shot because, you know, nothing's really popping over here. And it was also kind of it was kind of a good excuse to get out of Miami, you know, because mm-hmm. I was always just such an oddball growing up down there. Mm. So I went back to Miami Dade, got my associates, didn't have to pay any tuition for that. Thank God I was living with my folks and then wow. transferred up to FSU when I got accepted there with my AA. And that was like my ticket out of Miami, basically. So I get up to Tallahassee. I was going to be an electrical engineering major because it was completely the opposite of anything I knew anything about. <laughs> so I was like, if I go back to college, why well, I want to go for something I already know about, you mm-hmm. know, so electrical engineering. Yeah. I, I don't <laughs> know anything about that. I actually made it through the math and science and stuff like that. But when I got down to the engineering campus at FSU FAMU, I mean, that was when I found myself surrounded by people who really love doing that stuff. Fucking nerds, and right? <laughs> I, I just, I couldn't hang, you know, because right. I'm looking at it. It's like the way that I think about like drums, music, or playing in bands is the way that these people think about you know, circuit design or, or, you know, mechanics, things like that. And it's just like, I, I got to stop living a lie at this point. You know, oh, I, I got, I sunk to a very low point in my life. At that time I was depressed. I was suicidal. Like you name it. Like it was just, it was a very dark time in my life. Um, but the first step out of it was changing my major you know? yeah. like, got back to the main campus started doing political science because i could do it in my sleep my mom was an attorney growing up my dad was very involved in local politics in miami so it's like oh. i kind of i spoke the language i was around it i almost thought about going off to law school for a little bit i didn't think oh. i was going to play music again um and then in my senior year i started going to open mic night at the warehouse on Wednesdays where I started doing those drum solos. And then on Tuesday, I'd go to the pre-law society meetings. Right. <laughs> so it's like these two very, very different worlds. And after about two months of that, I'm just looking and I'm just like, I'm going to go over here with the musicians. Like, I like this stuff, you wow. know, like this is more in my wheelhouse. Were they like welcoming? Like were, when you went to like an open mic, would you make like a friend every night or how was that? I, it was, it was a really amazing experience with open mic night at the warehouse because the first night I ever went there, I had no idea. I actually, I knew a buddy through the college of engineering, oddly enough, he was a guitarist and he was like, Oh yeah, come over here. Like I'm going to play at this open mic. Night. I'm like, all right, cool. And, Went over and the room at this place, uh, the warehouse in Tallahassee, Florida, that was the name of it. The room was so insane acoustically. Mm-hmm. I walk in here, I mean, like, you mean just anybody can just roll up in here? I don't have to book this place like two months in advance or something. Mm-hmm. So about a month later, when I finished up my courses, I went out on Wednesday night and I knocked on the door and this guy, Doc Russell, who, you know, runs, uh, ran the warehouse at the time and ran the open mic night. He answered the door. And he could have said anything in the world to me, you know, in that moment. And I'm just like there with all my drum gear on a rack. And I'm like, hey, man, is it cool? Like if I play drums, I heard there's an open mic. And he, he's just like, yeah, sure. You know, like, come on in. So it was it was cool. And um, I did it. I fell flat on my face because I hadn't been on stage in years at that point. Um, but I had the time of my life. And being the drummer at the open mic night was kind of like being the hot girl at the party because like all these singer songwriters, you know, were hanging around oh, wow. and it was like, oh, you, you know, you want to come in and sit in with me on stage. Everybody want me to like, you know, be their backing drummers. So they could look a little bit cooler or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. So I started to meet all these singer songwriters that were hanging around there. And one of them was a guy named Tim Rock. And we started a band or I joined, you know, a band that he had going in Tallahassee called the Rosie Shades. 
And we did our thing in Tallahassee for a couple of years. Like it was after I got done with college and, you know, we recorded a couple of EPs. I, I record again, all DIY recording mm -hmm. and we did shows around there. We opened up for a band called wild child at club down under. We had a song on a TV commercial in uh, Poland. Oddly enough, it was weird how that <laughs> happened. Um, submitted it through a blog and a music supervisor found us and like paid us to license it out. It's really, really random. What, what year was that? That was 2013. Okay. Yeah. So blogs are still pretty re it was, relevant. It was, it was prominent at that time for sure. It was just kind of an odd thing because we couldn't get like 10 people to a show in Tallahassee to save our lives. And all of a sudden, like our music is on this like international TV commercial, yeah. <laughs> getting like Facebook likes from the UK and, and Germany and all these places. And it was gnarly. Um, but that, you know, that project fizzled out after like another year and I was still playing the open mic night. See, that's the th Are you yeah. saying project by band? Is band, that what you mean? Yeah, band. See, I'm using them synonymously. See, yeah. yeah. See, yeah. when I had the yeah. Pretty Awkward on, they said yeah. that too. Like, why do bands, <laughs> why do people in bands call their bands projects? Because, well, <laughs> you know, sometimes you're in that phase as a band where it's like you are working with somebody on music or you know, just, just ideas and you might not know where it's going to go. You know, you, you don't necessarily go into every, it's, you know, asking somebody like, Oh, you, you want to start a band together. It's like asking somebody if they want to get married to you, you know what I mean? Okay. Like you don't just like go for that right off the bat. <laughs> you, you might hang out and <laughs> date for a little bit or something like mm -hmm. that. Try some different ideas. Maybe if that, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so you know, that's, you know, when a lot of times when people say the word project, like in the band scene and cultures and stuff like that, yeah, it's talking about like, you know, I might be working on this thing with so-and-so or this and that. We might, you know, you might not have anything out yet. You might not be playing a show yet, but it's just sort of a way of saying like, yeah, like we're working on that, but it's not like, don't try to look us up on Spotify so or something. Yeah. It stops being a project once you get like recognition. There's no official terminology for it really, okay. um, but you know. If you want, you know, if you want to call it a band at some point, I mean, a band has this kind of connotation just from my experience around it where, you know, it's like band is like, okay, there's like a, a set membership more or less. And, and there's a you know set of original material in place. I mean, a band could be also, a band could be whatever you want it to be. When right. I, when I started Raised on Rhythm, like I, you know, I interview bands in Seattle, but I don't focus really on any one particular genre. So like, like Miragloss, for instance, you know, two singers and a DJ producer, like that's a band to me, mm. you know, like they might not be playing guitars. They probably don't sound anything like, uh, apology wars or, you know, Elvis Batchild or, you know, a, a guitar band or something like and that. And these are for the audience listening. These are all yeah. Seattle bands. These are all Seattle bands. Yeah. So oh. I'm just going to tell you how I'm thinking. Go for it. Yeah. I just want to see if I'm on the right page. I'm still, yeah. cause I'm still really, I'm, I'm right now I'm going through a phase where I'm soaking in all this information yeah. about bands and pop. Yeah. So when you say pro back on the project sure, band yeah, thing, yeah. so yeah. would you say like a project is like when you're like a thing with someone and then a band is when you're officially dating and you're telling people like, could, like Nirvana would be a band. That's not a project. Or is it yeah. really just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Listen, there's no, this isn't like the NFL rule book. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, I'm just trying not, to get yeah. hip to the hip talk, Absolutely. to the band you talk. Know, is this, what you, this is the greatest reason to do a podcast, man. You just soaked up all this game, all these interviews you've done, man, for sure. But like, yeah, I mean, Project Band, I, I use them synonymous, but I'd say like, you know, if we have material, if we had a record out and, and there's a, a press picture out somewhere and whatnot, then that's band. Got it. So how, how many bands have you been part of overall? Probably about 26. Holy lifetime. shit. Yeah. Is yeah. that good or bad? Like, is that uh, like, this is one, this is one yeah. more like dating sure. lingo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
Like if you tell I, I someone, a, I got a high count. <laughs> yeah. So if you talk to, if you're like, if a girl or a guy is like, so yeah. how many people you've been with? Twenty six <laughs> versus a band. If you've been with a lot of bands, is that good or what? <laughs> oh man. I mean, every one of them was a learning experience. You know, that's that's the thing about it. I that's mean, what she it, said. <laughs> I, I, you know, same. Yeah, there same shit. <laughs> I, I always joke that when it, you know when it comes to bands, I have like a much higher maturity level than I do when it comes to like real relationships <laughs> in my personal life. To do different things, um, but <laughs> if this was you know the equivalent, if we're talking the equivalent of romance, I've probably been like divorced twenty times <laughs> or something like yeah. that. You know, but yeah. it's just, I don't know. It's it's. But it's life because they were all different eras. I mean, the, right. the first one I was in, I was, you know, I was like 14 and I, yeah. I met these, you know, a couple of dudes on like AOL Instant Messenger, <laughs> just to let you know how long ago it was. And that was our first band in Miami. I'm actually, I'm actually about to see those dudes in a couple of weeks. I'm going to yeah. go down there. We still hang out. We're still cool to this day. Still... Our band was called Pink Eyed Sex Monkeys. Oh, gosh. And we used to just get together and play pop punk covers on the weekend at my bassist's house. And Somewhere out there on the internet is our really, really <laughs> crappy recording of all the small things by Blink-182, <laughs> us covering it. If you that's listening to this wants to try and dig that up, be my guest. You could probably blackmail me with those recordings at this point. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but, you know, it went from that. And it was all different styles of music, too, over the years. Because over, what, 20 years I've been doing it now, it's it's like wow. the, the paradigms and the music cultures have shifted so many yeah. times. Like when I... When I was first doing it in South Florida, this was like 2001, and like every other band had a DJ because they were trying to copy Limp Bizkit. Because mm, like, you know, like, right. like, like, that was popping at the time. And then fast forward three years, and they're all trying to copy Blink-182, and three years more, and now they're trying to copy Hardcore. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like the, whatever the big trend is that later on diffuses through the music scene, and everybody's trying to ride that wave. Were you, know? you a, were you a drummer through all 26 bands? Always a drummer, yeah. Can you always. sing at all? No, never tried, uh, never wanted to. I, singing, I I play drums to express the things that I want to express, but I just I can't sing them and I can't rap about them and I can't you know right. I, I get the emotions out that I have a hard time expressing through vocals, but I, I have no problem with that. Like I I enjoy doing that. But how does that? Can you explain how that works? How do you? Yeah. How do you express through drums? So express through drums. Um, it's a little bit different if I'm recording. Because that's different. Obviously, I don't have a live, you know, visual to go with it. So I have to be much more careful about staying in the pocket and being very deliberate in my hits and in the rhythmic consistency and stuff like that. Live on stage, Mm -hmm. it's all sorts of body language. You know, last Saturday night, for instance, we did the show with Monster Watch, Peyote Ugly and Frond at Attaball. And that night was fun because... So Attaball is a band or a place? Attaball's a bar okay. in Fremont, okay. which you're not 21 yet. So, you know, there we go. When you are, I'll buy you your first shot. That's <laughs> cool. I got you. But, um, so that was an outdoor stage. And I really had a lot of room to, to just flail around because you know acoustically, I could play a lot louder there because the sound doesn't bounce off the walls as quick. Mm-hmm. So it might... Expression when I'm playing drums could be everything from a head nod to a, a, a grimace or the, you know, my body language, my face, the way it looks, you know, winding my arms up for certain hits or like crosses when I just want to like emphasize a certain hit. Yeah. Um, it's a visual thing and it's, it's very hard for me to express here on audio, you know, come out to go, come out to a blade palace show. We're playing at the <laughs> substation this Wednesday, come out to see peyote ugly. You know, you'll, you'll see more of what I'm talking about there. I could show you better than I can tell you, mm-hmm. but there is, there is an expression to it. What about, 
when you're like home alone. Like I hear like yeah. rappers or even singers, whoever, yeah, they're able yeah. to like write out like how they're feeling. Sure. So how do you do that when you're on your own? When I'm in a room all by myself, it's kind of interesting because I'll go into a very abstract headspace a lot there. And and honestly, a lot of the stuff that I play by myself really, I don't play it live. It's just like it's it's special because it's just there for myself when I'm all by myself and there's mm-hmm. nobody else around. It's like a mantra just, almost? I'm not sure. It's just stuff that I find really interesting, but that I'm not sure that anybody else would. Music is like a language, right? you know, and it's like when I'm on stage in front of people, I'm talking, I'm having a conversation very different that I'm, if I'm in my practice space by myself, I'm just talking to myself. Mm. I'm probably saying stuff that might sound crazy if I were to like express it or, you know, might not convey the emotion to somebody else that it conveys to myself because they don't understand it. But maybe that's what you need to release. Maybe you need to put that out. Maybe that's sometimes, what... Sometimes, yeah. Some, sometimes, and that's the whole point of playing a lot of shows, you know, is, right. is you try different stuff out. You know, and and you're like, well, man, I was messing around with that. Let me see real quick. You know, I might I might not stick to the part that was on the record. I might change up a feel here and there. I'm like, okay, let me see what happens when I try that. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, man, nobody seemed to really dig that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, but again, it's like it's experimenting with dialogue in that way. It's something that happens a lot at local shows, especially too, because there's not this pressure that you get with like big arena shows where like everybody's like, you know, you're paying a hundred dollars for a ticket. Like everybody's like, you better deliver the goods. You know, they're mm-hmm. expecting a certain thing. That's the beauty of you know house shows and. and backyard shows and punk rock i mean, I forget who you were interviewing but you, you know somebody said house show and you thought it was like house oh, music man. and stuff like that yes and i was just like oh okay man, so bro. wait 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 yeah, yeah it's cool so that's not that's on me not yeah. demo like that's a real that's a real thing like house show scene is an actual scene yeah so house shows and backyard shows really get started because you know you gotta be 21 to get into the bars you know oh, okay but there's a whole environment outside of that where it's you know if you're like under 21 or a lot of times it's people too, um, trans people, BIPOC people, if they feel like not really like excluded or like unsafe, you know, and, and sometimes in traditional venues, right. you know, I would hope that doesn't happen in Seattle, but unfortunately. We got Cop Hill though, right? Yeah, you could, you know, you could say I don't that. Want to stereotype people by know, saying I, Obviously I can't speak from that perspective right. myself, but there are sort of like alternative environments like that where people create spaces and you, you know, you just have a bunch of bands in your living room you know, invite like three or four, like come play or like play a backyard. Like when I grew up in Miami, houses down there didn't have basements in Florida because the sea level's too high. So we would do backyard shows in Miami. Like you just invite like a couple yeah. of your friends' bands and you just all play like a backyard show. The sound is like dog shit. You know, it's not not great, but that's not the point. It's like you're just coming over to like all experience a moment like that together. And, you know, when I was doing it, yeah, there might be some underage drinking going on. stuff like that yeah. was back years ago, you know, but. Um, <laughs> I got I got two things. First, yeah, sure. a little off topic, and yeah, then I have a follow-up. Go for it. When you said that the sea level is so high that you can't have basements, yeah. I was just literally on my phone this morning, and this yeah. this poor family in, I think yeah. it was New York, yeah. drowned yeah. because of, like, was it Hurricane Ida or whatever? Yeah, the remnants of Ida. Yeah, That's very craziness. Yeah. I never thought, like, I guess for, like, when I was in Oregon, because yeah. I, uh, I I picked up surfing and also drove through Oregon to yeah. go to L.A., and yeah. I, driving through Oregon, there's literal signs, like, on the, the road, on the coast that says, 
like tsunami warning zones. Sure. I'm like, I've never seen that here in Seattle. I, I get, it's I, gnarly. I, yeah. I, I never really thought about that. A lot of other parts in America, houses have basements, but in Florida, because of where, like the, the it's basically like two feet above sea level and it's a limestone, mm. like geographically speaking, it's like limestone foundation underneath. So you really can't like dig down into that. Right. Like have a basement in a house. So for a house show, if you wanted to do it down there, you'd probably do it in like your backyard. Mm. And when I was growing up, I had a couple of friends that lived in the hood and it was great because like their neighbors would not like nobody would ever call in a noise complaint on you because they were going to throw a party the next day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It's like it was cool. It's like and, and they didn't even care. I mean, we might be like a death metal band or something like right. that. It was like they didn't give a shit. Like, you just play whatever you want. They're like, yeah, it's cool. You know, because they're going to be playing like, you know, something later on at like 4 a.m. or like having a crazy party over mm. there. So you just do backyard shows like that. And in other parts of the country, it might be a basement show or a house show. And again, you kind of create those environments. They're they're chaotic. And like I say, they're rough around the edges because, you know, the production is obviously non-existent. It's just everybody bringing their instruments and setting up and playing music. Mm-hmm. But it's really an interesting environment for experimentation and new stuff in that way, too, because you're just trying out all different kinds of stuff. It's not an established audience. Sometimes those shows are actually the foundation to build right. audiences that then later on go into the clubs, you know, as those bands grow. And when those bands are first starting out, you know, they're just hitting all these house shows in different scenes around America, like one by one. But a house show usually is bands? It could be bands. These days, especially, I mean, it could be, you know, it could be DJs too. It could be rappers. It could be, it could be whatever you want. It could be for performance art, poetry. Um, wow. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm a little bit removed from it now. So I'm about, I'm about to be 35 here, you know, so it's, it's house show scenes. It's like, you know, again, it kind of it's like usually hurts. colleges, yeah, then, college teenagers, stuff like again, okay. people that you know, usually people that can't get into like regular bars or nightclubs because they're not of age yet. So, you know, for for me to still be going to house shows, that'd be a little weird at this point in my life. You know, I'd, like if I'm in a band that's playing that's different, you know. So, okay, the point being is that I'm not necessarily in that world, you know, or at least you know, not as much. Um, but it's like a whole nother scene within the scene. Got it. You know? So bands can play like every night though if they want to, like at local bars and things like that. And how it's does that work? Not really. In Seattle, it's kind of a tough sell. My experience up here is like Monday and Sunday nights and Tuesday nights are really kind of like people really don't go out for live music those nights a lot. People really don't go out a lot in general unless they're service industry. Mm-hmm. Because if you work in a bar or restaurant yourself, then like Tuesday night, that's like your Saturday night right there. Got it. But it's very rare that I see local shows or local music nights on like a Monday or Tuesday night. Uh, maybe if it's like a big touring band coming through, that's a little bit different, right? you know, but um, for the most part, I mean, most of the action in Seattle is going to be on a Friday or Saturday, Friday or Saturday night. I think a lot of that is too, is because of, you know, just the tech culture and influence. Like people, people don't really do nothing. They don't do anything during the week, mm-hmm. but Friday, Saturday, they just go, they just go crazy hard those nights. But, but bands know that they can yeah. have those Saturdays and those, fr- I could just say Fridays and Saturdays to perform. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like if, if you know... Like you how know, many? How about this? So first sure. of all, they know that they can perform those two days. Yeah. How roughly how many venues and bars are there in Seattle for bands to choose from? I would say just a rough head count offhand. Uh, they can pro- even be shitty, just like pro- overall. Probably about fourteen to eighteen, I would say, right off the bat. Wow. It depends because some people do shows on some nights, but not others. Or they do like I know Cha Cha Lounge, for instance, might do like a one off here and there, but I don't like regularly go to Cha Cha Lounge expecting to see like live music there. Got it. You know what I mean? Um, 
but there's those. And then, you know, like I say, the, the thing about original bands that's tricky is you can only play the same song so many times before people get sick of it. Mm-hmm. That's why if you notice like a lot of bigger touring acts, you know, you might do like a show, like one or two shows in a market in a given year or two. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to wait till you have a new album out or something like that. Right. There are exceptions to that rule, you know, like Martial Law Band, for instance, you know, because they might get a lot more like jammy and vibey and yeah. they'll invite other people up to do their songs. So they really like each show is really an experience in and of itself. It's not just them playing through all their songs like a Spotify playlist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there are exceptions to that rule for sure. But like for a lot of bands, like I said, there's only so many times that you can play in the scene before people get sick of you or unless you, you know, you got new music out or you're changing it up, you're evolving. But do you have to fight for those spots though? Or is it easy to get into those Friday and Saturday sh- shows or ever? Or? It's definitely not easy to get booked on a Friday or Saturday night because for most bars and venues, especially post COVID, I mean, those are the nights they have to make their money. Got it. You know, it's like, you do not want like a Friday or Saturday night show bombing. Cause mm-hmm. you know, that's like the night that everybody's expecting to get paid, you know, with the bar and stuff. I like, I get it. You know, their businesses, um, typically like the local venues, they might take more chances on like a weeknight if it's a slow night. And that's always like the advice that I, I always give to bands. There's like, Oh, we're trying to get booked or something like that. I'm like, go to a place and offer to play on a slow night straight up, you know, like tell them to put you on because frankly, even if it's just you and the bartender <laughs> or the sound person, maybe two, right. three other people, you know, if that bartender actually sees you and it's, you know, word gets around you, that bar, guess what? That bartender's going to go to their boss and be like, yeah, like there's this band, you know, they played mm-hmm. here on Tuesday night. They might not have nobody now, but you know, put them on Friday or Saturday because they're good. You right. know? Like, so it's kind of like get in where you fit in in that way. And you could build up to like a Friday or Saturday night. It's a catch 22 for a lot of bands in Seattle because you're your friends and people that you know that want to go out, they all want to go out on a Friday or Saturday night. Nobody wants to go out to go see live music on like Tuesday or Monday. Like that's a really hard sell. Mm-hmm. Not saying nobody, but you know, it's like, it's a much harder sell. So it's a catch 22 sometimes for bands because venues will be like, well, well what's your draw? Or like how many people can you bring out? I'm like, if you get us on a Friday night, Saturday night, like we'll be all right. <laughs> if you try and get us out here on Monday night, there ain't going to be shit. <laughs> right. And, and then how do bands yeah. figure out how, what their draw usually is going to be? Like, do they have an email? Like, do you guys, does your band have an email list? Do you no. have no. friends, you know, always show up or what? I've been told to do an email list. Honestly, I feel like that's really impersonal. I, I will say to bands, like, honestly, if you are expecting less than 150 people out there, every one of those attendees should be an individual conversation. Hmm. I'm talking like somebody you see or hanging out at the bar with, maybe a DM, Instagram, like a message and be like, hey, what you doing on Friday night? You know, something like that. Every one of those people should be an individual connection, okay. you know, because the last thing you want to do, especially, you know, I think especially when you're just starting out is to just be posting, you know, social media, like, oh, we're playing here on Friday. And then nobody interacts with that because it's basically just an advertisement. Yeah. Nobody wants to see that in their feed. You know, the engagement's low. That's not a good look. It just it doesn't really get people hype. You know, so. When you're at that level, I think the best thing you could do is to really build those individual connections because really what you're doing with that and really where the value of live music is in this day and age is creating community. Mm-hmm. Anybody can go on YouTube and watch a great musician perform, but I'm probably not going to want to go home with somebody I meet in the comment thread. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, But if there's an event happening, and I know that this is a place where 
I'm probably going to go and I can hang out. I can meet some like-minded people and we're going to have a good time. And everybody's, you know, it's going to be good vibes all night. You know, might even meet a special someone. You never know. <laughs> like if you know that it's going to be a social experience like that, I'm not saying that the bands don't matter. The bands are critical in this, but the music is kind of secondary. I mean, the, the main selling point for live music is creating that environment. People crave that now, especially in this day and age. Like, I, like, I want that, you know, like all this Instagram, internet interaction. What about stuff this? Like yeah. Before, yeah. before the pandemic, yeah. you, it's, you, you can easily say that the job market was oversaturated and anyone can find a job. And now that the pandemic's mm. happened, it's way mm. harder to get a job or even for jobs to even find people that want to work mm. at a McDonald's or whatever type of job yeah. it is because yeah. of the pandemic, people were scared. But with live music, yeah. you think more people are going to live music now or before the pandemic where people were going to live music more? The first couple of shows that I went to, you know, in July, especially most of the shows I went to in July, every crowd was going ape shit. Mm. I'm talking like Seattle audiences sometimes have a reputation for being very, you know, stoic and standoffish, yeah. you know, arms folding. Those first couple of weeks, you can go on my Instagram and check this out at Raised on Rhythm. But like I had videos from some of those shows and you just see like King Youngblood playing in Barbosa and motherfuckers are just crowd surfing and stage diving everywhere and going absolutely insane. Yeah. Linda from work, when Peyote played with them at Barbosa, you know, it's just like Linda from work just had the whole like floor hopping. Everybody, people were just so happy. And explain Barbosa. Is, like, is Barbosa, for people listening yeah. outside of Seattle, is Barbosa yeah. like a big local venue, small local venue? Like where does Barbosa sit in the Seattle music I wanna, scene? I want to say Barbosa is a 200 cap. Don't quote me on that, but it's somewhere in that range. Um, and it's basically the same owners as Numos, which is- And a, Numos is where know, like touring artists come to Seattle. To touring artists. Well, some local artists too. I mean, Spirit Award almost sold it out back when they did uh, the show in early July. They actually kicked off the opener. It was with Antonioni and Black Ants. That was an amazing show mm. that night. I was out there. It was great. Um you know, so local bands can definitely, you know, like I know Black Tones have played at Numos and, and Marshall Law Band. You got to be a bigger yeah. person, though. Like if you're an up and coming artist yeah. with no fault, you're not going to Numos. Yeah. And and even, yeah, you just wouldn't want to anyway because it's just not a good look. Like you don't <laughs> want like a half empty. It's better to yeah. have, it's better to play in like a, a living room and have like 20 people in there bouncing into each other and going nuts than it is to play in like the bigger venue and have it like kind of half empty and, and people kind of milling about. But, as far as Barbosa goes, and and this goes for some other venues too, where it's like it's the same owner, but they have two different rooms. Mm -hmm. um, Tractor Tavern and Sunset used to kind of have that dynamic too, where it's like, okay, it's this, you know same owner, same people, but you have like the bigger room, and then depending on who's like hitting you up or who you're trying to get booked out, you know you could put this person in that room because you know they'll sell that out, or you can put this person in that room because well, yeah, we think we could, you know have a good good night over there and it gives it just gives them some options to work with as far as mm -hmm. booking goes and do do bands and artists in general do they look outside of the seattle music scene like do they look at neighboring cities like a bellevue or something like that to perform or when people are like i'm gonna i'm gonna perform tonight yeah is it most definitely gonna be like in the seattle area oddly enough i have never heard of a rock and roll show happening in bellevue not like i've heard of cover bands that play out there like bar bands you know again kind of what we yeah. talked about earlier i've never see that's where the money yeah. is so people who are not from <laughs> seattle i feel like the money is in these wealthier like east side areas why aren't fans and rappers and whoever playing there 
the, the money is over there, but you really want to play for a crowd of people that's just going to stay in there with their arms folded the whole time because they got money. They don't want to move around. Like they're very afraid of how they're going to be perceived or like how they're going to look or like what their coworkers are going to think of a video of them like crowd surfing comes out the next day. Right. It's, just like that. You know, it's like so. And what you're talking about is very interesting. I, I agree yeah. because there is this kind of disconnect. It's Between, oh my God. I'm like, just realizing there's a yeah. disconnect yeah. in so many different fields. There <laughs> is. It's it's a disconnect between like, okay, like, and you were talking about this a little bit with Will, you know, when he was on the other week and the, like the people are over here, the money's over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, um, you know, and, and there are things that I think you could do again, and it's a little bit beyond the scope of the podcast. There are policies and, and things I think you could put in place to kind of like just even that out a little bit or actually right. make it so that the people who are excited about live music actually have some money to support it and go check it out. You know, as far as like Bellevue Redmond goes again, like, and there, this is not to say like, there are definitely bars over there and there are definitely bars that have live music and bands. Mm-hmm. My experience from what I've seen is it tends to be bands that cater to like a little bit of older audience or again, it'll be like cover songs, you know, stuff that's like predictable, P- you know, when people, mm-hmm. when that audience goes out, it's a little bit different. You know, they're interested more in like hearing the stuff that reminds them of their youth, you know, or takes them back to like that that place you know when they hear certain songs you know they may not be open to wanting to hear like something new or like a new band new ideas there there needs to be some change that like think about it like all the money even when it comes like the kids you know yeah some parents don't want their kids going to seattle to go see shows like what if there's like what if there's a concert venue or something in redmond or Bellevue or whoever and like local artists were able to go there and perform or whatever sure I, I want to say, actually, now that I think about it, and again, like, don't quote me on this because I'm sure yeah, I'm blanking no on spots, you know, but I want to say there was like a, I saw that Shana Shepard was playing somewhere over there at some point. It's like a performing arts high, uh, theater in Kirkland, I think, somewhere. Oh, is it K-Tub maybe? Maybe. maybe I, you know, again, I'm I'm so fuzzy on that that I don't, I don't want to speak yeah, for no I just don't want to be incorrect, but, you know. Just yeah, get I'm wild. Sh- yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're there, like. I, I know if you get up to Everett, for instance, like Tony V's is like the, yeah. the spot up there, right. essentially in Everett, that will have like live bands. If you go down to Tacoma, actually now, you know, with Tacoma, I mean, they got like Alma Mater, uh, Spanish Ballroom, Jazz Bones. Like there, there's a handful of like venues popping up, I think in part because, and I don't know if um, I don't have the data to back this one up, mm-hmm. but I almost sense that when COVID shut down a lot of the restaurants and a lot of the young people who were living in Seattle that were relying on hospitality for their day jobs, they lost all that work. There was kind of this move down to like either, you know, Tacoma for some of them or like some of these other areas more on the outskirts. So Mm -hmm. almost there's like this energy for rock and roll shows, especially, you know, that's kind of like migrated to these other areas, you know, it's still in Seattle heavy for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but I notice more shows happening like that where Seattle bands will go down to Tacoma or even um like Peyote Ugly, we're about to play Olympia um September 19th, I want to say, 18th, 19th. I might be blanking on the date. Sorry, Andy. <laughs> Shout out to Andy Remix Moreno. He's putting it together. Cap oh, City yeah. Presents. Um but we're going to be going down there to Olympia for a show. That's like a big college town too. So Olympia yeah. for people not from Seattle. That's like a yeah. almost a 2-hour drive, right? It's two. It's probably three if you hit rush hour. Like and all that's the way south down. of Seattle. It's about yeah. It's about if if you have no traffic, it's probably like a it's good like hour fifteen minutes. It's not that long if there's no traffic, but there's almost guaranteed to be traffic like going between and all Seattle, the construction. Tacoma. And yeah, there's Tacoma that part of Tacoma by the Tacoma zone. It's just like the interstate is just perpetually under construction. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. You know. Do you go like, on the 520 bridge at all? Oh yeah, constantly. Because yeah, driving Uber and Lyft. Yeah, yeah I, I go all over the city on any given day. I have this weird. I I'm like claustrophobic for certain things, and other things I'm not claustrophobic about. Yeah. But I tell people my biggest fears are spiders and claustrophobia. Mm, mm. <laughs> and this uh, the 520 bridge. Yeah. They're building the train on the right-hand side of it. Are you talking about the I-90 bridge? Because that's where they're building the light rail at. The the toll bridge. That's 520, right? No, Well, 520 is the one north of that that goes in, straight into uh, Medina. Green Lake. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, That's what I'm talking about. They're not building a train there? No, they're building the train on the I-91, which is south of there. Oh, then what the heck are they building on the 520? There's like a... <sighs> There's something below the bridge that they're building, like an add-on of something. Oh, really? I, I thought that was a train. I knew they were doing construction. I don't think it was going to be a train, though. I think the light rail was going to be going on 90. Okay, because I was yeah, thinking yeah, about yeah. that. So basically, yeah. the, the yeah, yeah. 520 bridge <laughs> is, of course, a bridge across the water. Yeah, yeah. It goes from, like, Bellevue to North Seattle. Yeah. And <laughs> I was thinking about this because basically yeah. there's, like, there's some construction on the right-hand side of the bridge over the water, and I was like, are they building a train there? Because if, if there's something, if, it, if the train collapses or something, it's going straight into the water. So yeah, I guess maybe it isn't. A, maybe it isn't a bridge, but whatever it is, yeah. all this construction has made it so the lanes are super, super skinny. Like it's yeah. they've made yeah. like a one yeah. lane road for two people. So yeah. like if you swerve to the left, you're crashing into like a the the pylon pillar. Yeah. On the, if you if you move to the right. You're crashing into like the car next to you. It's like the Aurora Avenue bridge. It's narrow, man. It's it's. <laughs> so I have to drive that almost every day, and like it's yeah. ne- it's never gotten easier. I'm like fuck, yeah, fuck. And then yeah, like a couple yeah. weeks ago, this utility van just bumper carded the back of my car. There's no damage, ooh. but I was like, oh my god, I started swerving in between the. Man. It was terrible, but. Yeah, <laughs> be careful, bro. Hey. There's um, I don't know how we got onto the 520 bridge, but. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> we're talking about just shows in, you know, Bellevue and Redmond, Kirkland versus Seattle in right. general, like all these other areas. So, oh, we were, ta- we were talking yeah. about like you going to Tacoma. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah. with that being said, the reason why I'm asking you all these questions about the venues, sure. yeah. maybe it's because I'm part of the scene. Sure. I see hip hop being the yeah. biggest genre in Seattle and the way that those are the people getting signed right now to that. record labels. Absolutely. But hip hop is just the biggest genre, period. Like by right. by streaming, if you go by the numbers on Spotify, it's like the biggest, the most streamed genre, period, is hip hop and R and B. It's like thirty percent right. of streams on that. Rock is like uh, is up there, but it's not not nearly with hip hop. Man, hip hop dominates. The last time I heard about like like rock country controversy was Little Nas X, and he's a hip hop artist. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, I haven't yeah, really, yeah, yeah. I need to really tap into rock more. Sure, but yeah. um. If if hip hop's like the biggest genre in Seattle, yeah, why aren't they playing at these sh- like bars? Like, do do bars not want hip hop artists? Do hip hop artists not know that they can play at bars? Or what's going on with that? There's definitely some cases, and I also you know I'm not going to say any names because this is stuff that was told to me in confidence. But there are definitely cases of bar owners and club owners not wanting to book hip hop because of the fear of like violence or that some kind of like fight or stabbing is going to break out Mm. or something like that. I mean, it's kind of ironic because it's not like that stuff doesn't happen at rock shows sometimes, not, not frequently, you know, I mean, there's security and stuff like that, you know, but it's like, you know, bosh pits, you know, but, Mm. (laughs) but you know, I don't know. I, I mean, 
some of that I lived in Atlanta, you know, for a little bit. And it's like, I remember like a lot of the clubs out there, you know, you go to a club, there is like armed security, like every, like they do not play down there mm-hmm. when it comes to club security. Seattle can be a little more chill in that way. And so, because you have to remember too, that security and liability insurance, like that's a huge added expense for mm-hmm. event promoters. So if you got a choice as an event promoter between like, okay, I got mm-hmm. this event right here where I don't have to get any of that, you know, and it's still going to sell the place out, pack the place out versus like this event right here where I am going to have to hire a whole extra ton of security and get like insurance and stuff like that. It's like, which one are you going to go with? You know, you probably, if you're in okay. a business, you're trying to make money, you're trying to go with the one that has less overhead. Um, so that's, that's part of the reason. The other, the other side of that, that I see is, at least as far as hip hop is concerned is that when it comes to live, some rappers are better on stage than others. Okay, um, right. I really appreciate a good live rapper. I'll say that right now. Um, shout out to Live. I just, yeah, I just saw them. They did day in and day out. Live music. I, 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 man, like if you haven't that song, one track mine. That's my favorite song of theirs. She's dope. Yeah, great man. Like, and I saw you know the little clips that I saw day in and day out. I'm like getting it you know just rocking like you yeah. know some some hip-hop really know how to work a crowd like that but then the other side yeah. is yeah. if these you're saying like i mean, i was yeah. agreeing with you like sure. how yeah. a lot of hip-hop artists aren't as good live because yeah. of maybe it's their music that they're making yeah. or whatever maybe it just sounds yeah. better in your headphones yeah but those hip-hop artists if they're not performing live in the first place when they go get sure. to perform live they're gonna suck so like Absolutely. where where do these hip hop artists go? I wonder. The big the biggest thing with with up and coming hip hop artists that I've seen is open mic nights. You know, and I mm-hmm. I say this as somebody that played an open mic night for four and a half years myself because it's like if you've never been on stage before, that's the best place to cut your teeth. You know, it doesn't matter what you do. it could be. You know, but hip hop especially like just go out to any open mic night. Um, I don't know if they do them at Connor Burns so much. I know there's like other up. I think there are other open mics that are more hip hop specific. You know, and and those would be the ones that I would go with if if it were me right. in their shoes. You know, but you know, go up on stage and just try doing two songs. You know, live and doing that. I I guarantee you, go out and do that every week for like a year, whatever. While you're like yeah. grinding away in the studio every now and then and stuff. There's things you can learn like that, like how to work a crowd, the psychology of how people respond live on stage. And and this is stuff that you can really only learn by going and doing it because this always changes with the times yeah. too. Audiences evolve, you know, and you have to just kind of go out there and and experience that. And it's like rock bands too. Like rock bands have to go do that. Where you know you got to hit the stage, you got to learn. Like okay, they responded to that, but they didn't respond to that. Like maybe I'll tweak this a little bit, or I'll try to do different next time. The best ability is not so much having like raw talent. It's more having that ability to look at yourself and say, what could I have done better. What can I change for next time? How mm-hmm. can I elevate this experience? And you're always doing that all the time. Every show you play, every time you get on stage, even if it was a really good night, you know, right. you don't have to bring people around, you know, down around you or anything like that. Like, oh, that sucked or something. I'm not saying you got to do that, you know, but like privately, you know, in your head, you can just make a note like, <laughs> yeah, like switch that up next time or like see how that works. And it's the art of live performance. And you can really only like get there by just going and doing it. Sometimes you could bypass it because if you have like a really hot record or something like that and, and people are coming out specifically to, to see you it. and they already know you and they yeah. know your record, you could get on that stage and just bullshit for like an hour at that point. It wouldn't even matter because it's like, ah, and they're just right. so stoked to see you. You know, again, that's the psychology of like how people respond to live music when they're already familiar with the record versus if you're just like a nobody and you're just trying to give them like a good live show that stands on its own merit without any uh 
propagandizing <laughs> beforehand, if that makes sense what I'm talking no, about. Yeah, you know? I get that. Yeah. You, you, everyone should listen to the Will Jordan analogy. Did yeah. you listen to the little Bebo? Did you the little Bebo I'm trying to remember the, what that what it was offhand, but yeah. Yeah, and the that was really late into the interview, but Will Jordan yeah. was talking about like he was like, "This works more for before COVID, but <laughs> let's make up this artist named Little Bebo, and he's okay, gonna yeah. start at a ground one of uh, open mic. Yeah, yeah, meet those artists, yeah. build up that email list or friend list, yeah. and each open mic gain more people and stuff like that. And then that's yeah. your draw. Yeah. So with venues in Seattle, are, is there like a beginning venue and like a level up venue? Like, are you starting at a very basic venue and then going to Barboza, or can you be like a newer band performing at Barboza? Or how you, does that work? You could be a newer band hopping to some of those bigger stages if you're opening for a larger act, Got and it. that does happen sometimes. Where like a larger act, like that's more in the know with the scene, they might be like, "Oh, you know, I know that person; they're really good. I know they don't really have a draw, but I still want to like, I want to give them that platform so they can get in front of like my people because I know like." my audience would like eat this up, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I don't know if I could speak specifically to this. I don't want to speak for him, but like Dan line from spirit award, when he did the show back at Numos, you know, and he specifically got Antonioni and black ends to open up for him. Two great bands, you know, in their own right. I mean, Dan could have given that opening slot to whoever he wanted, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot, you know, a lot of bands, some bands, frankly, would just auction those off you know, the pay to play thing and stuff like mm. that. And people would buy on because they know if they can get in front of like all these people. And that happens in Seattle? I, I can't speak to specific instances of that happening in Seattle, but I know that definitely happens in the music industry where, it. you know, it's a promotional thing. Back in the day, you know, when OzFest used to be a tour, I don't know if you ever heard of that or remembered mm-hmm. that. The OzFest, I want to say I had heard, and this was just a rumor, but I had heard that the buy-on of the main stage was about $125,000. Damn. And the second stage buy-on was like $70,000 for the tour. And record labels would put up this money because they know, like, if, they, if they're trying to break this new artist and they get them in front of, like, 30,000 people at the San Bernardino Amphitheater, they're all metalheads, go go buy the record, like, that's your promo right there. Wow. So, or, or if you can sell them all T-shirts, you know, and you made that money back. <laughs> yeah. So some bands, you know, would do that with tours where they would just auction it off or make it, like, a buy-on slot. But getting back to my, my point that, was, that I was getting at with Numos, you know, Dan Lyon from Spirit War did not do that. Instead, he very deliberately went and got two bands, you know, in the Seattle scene that were doing awesome things and they're great live. And he put them on that stage, you know, opening up for Spirit Award that night. And they both played a great show mm. that night. Everything from start to finish. Sometimes, like the openers, too, you know, you, you worry because, like, oh, put the opener on because they know they suck or something like that to try and make the other band look good. Not black ends. <laughs> not black ends. Like Nicole, everybody in that band, like Black Ends went on and they were like, just like great right off the bat. I'm about to check these guys out. I don't Bla- know their music. Black Ends, they're great. Absolutely. I would start with Stay Evil or Monday Morning. Those are like my two favorite songs from them, but they, they got a couple EPs out. Black Ends are great. Um, Antonioni was really good that night too. They just put out a record. Uh, I want to say it was self-titled, the, the full length. I'm blanking on the title, but the record just came out this last year. Mm. Um, start with their song, Mary Bell. I would go with that one. It's probably my favorite off that record. There we go. You know, yeah. So Antonioni, Black and Spirit Award. Anyways, um, what I was talking about with that, though, you know, getting these bands on in front of those audiences, you know, it is a way to kind of help them build that draw. I don't think you necessarily need to do that in this day and age with that because, you know, 
you could put out, you know, you put out content, you have Instagram now, you have Spotify, like with singles and stuff. There's all sorts of other ways to get in front of an audience. Frankly, there's probably a lot bigger audience online than what right. you get in front of at even a sold out show in Seattle. But a show can be more relevant sometimes because, you know, it's an audience that's very into that particular kind of music. Like they're there because they love live music and they want to see this particular like, I feel like I feel like promoting yeah. nowadays is more left open. Yeah. Like when you're talking about the blogs. Yeah. You knew what blogs are reaching out to because yeah. you know what type of audience they 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 draw drew drew sometimes <laughs> they would draw in, in, or... in a lot of cases the last time i was doing press for for one of blade palace's first eps i mean it was pretty depressing like i was going around a lot of these blog sites you know that maybe used to be a thing a few years ago and every one of them had a banner at the top that was just like please donate to like help save uh, our site and it was just like oh god you know like it was, yeah. it was uh I, I hesitate to think about what their reach might have been at that point it's oh, like god. not really a good look yeah. i guess but but nowadays um, there's like no it's really weird. Like I, I, I can tell people what I've done that's yeah. helped me, yeah. but there's no one yeah. right answer anymore. Because it changes every day, like with the yeah. algorithms and stuff like that, you know. And that's one thing that I've always wanted to do with the podcast is to kind of try and help connect everybody. Because then it's like you know you can't predict who's going to get a win on any given week, mm -hmm. whether it's a band, whether it's an influencer, like whoever it is. Right. You can't predict who's going to have a lucky week with the algorithms. But as long as everybody's connected in and everybody's talking and there's a dialogue going on, then it helps everybody because sooner or later somebody is going to have a win and it's going to come back to everybody else. And then the next week they might have a bad week and then the next person, you know, yeah. puts out like a, a single that pops off or has a really good live show or something like that. And as long as everybody's talking and, and connecting with each other, it all comes back and it all works out. I think that's really the only way to survive, but frankly. If you're creating like a that. podcast like this, does yeah. that mean you see a disconnect with the band communities or what? That was part of it. I did kind of see like a, a disconnect when I first started. And I think the main problem was because when I had first started the podcast in August of 2020, we lost our live shows. Mm -hmm. you know, when we lost live shows for bands, that was their platform to say something, to speak out, to be heard. And when March, April 2020 happened and all that just went away, you know, we were trying to do live streams. We were trying to do that because it's sort of like the obvious pivot. You mm -hmm. know, it's not really the same because you don't experience the people around you, the environment, you know, all that other stuff that you kind of lose when you can't do live shows. And then towards May, you know, when you started to have you know, like the murders of Amon Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, if the music community in Seattle was already stressed, prior to that yeah that stuff just pushed it over you know the brink to where everybody was in the streets protesting no bands really even wanted to be on social media at that point especially you know like like here's my new single <laughs> yeah you didn't want to do that right. because you know we were trying to keep those channels free for streams and to see what was going on with the protests and things like that you wanted to keep it free for all that and what, you know, started with the protests, you know, after George Floyd was murdered and then what evolved into Chaz and Chop and all that, you know, and, and eventually evolved into the everyday marches and the protests. You know, again, we were trying to stay off social media during that time, a lot of the bands that I knew. And by August, it was pretty bleak. Mm -hmm. You know, August of 2020, you know, because by then the the everyday marches were still happening, of course. But 
I was just looking around the music scene at that point and it was just like, yo, like it's like if you're an artist or something like that, what are the platforms out here? Like something. So that was a point where even though like I, you know, we said at the start of this, you know, I had really not wanted to do anything, you know, like podcast or anything like that for years before. That was a point where I was looking around and I'm like, okay, I know I'm not the greatest protester in the world. Like I'm not going to front, you know, but like what's something I can do here to try to give people a platform, try to give people a voice about what's going on. Uh, because I felt very selfish in part, you know, just at that point, just sort of like going back and forth to my practice space, you know, just right. play music while the whole like community's like falling apart around me, you know? So that was the impetus to start the podcast. And did you have ke- like connections at that point or did you, I just, knew the, more I just knew the bands that Blade Palace had played with on stage, Got it. you know? So I, I knew some people, but I really wasn't that hooked into the Seattle music scene at that point, you, honestly. So you just play like shows that you could get on and then that's. Go well, home or what? well, I'm I'm talking more. You know, we weren't playing shows at all by that point. I'm talking. This was back like pre-quarantine when like Blade Palace was still playing shows, like other bands that we knew in the scene prior to that. But would you connect with those bands outside of just playing shows, or I really wouldn't for the most part. Got I mean, we you know we'd give each other's numbers and stuff. Maybe you know talk smack every now and then, text around and stuff. Got but it. um, you know, we'd keep in touch during quarantine. But then when I started up the podcast, the first couple of bands I wanted to have on were just other bands that I knew make it easy on myself to start yeah. on, you know, but it was cool because I would have people on and people would name drop other bands or talk about other things that were happening in the scene. It was like five more leads for me to follow up on. Like, Oh, yes. I've never heard of them. Like, let me go check them out and take a listen to the record. And one interview after another would just kind of snowball like that. Mm-hmm. So I'd start learning about all this stuff that just wasn't even on my radar before. And then I started yeah. listening to the music too, though is the thing because this is one thing I sort of realized it's like a lot of these bands are putting out records and people might like a photo on Instagram or they might click like on a Facebook status but a lot of people weren't actually listening to the songs mm-hmm. they weren't listening to the records right and it was in my mind it was it was a travesty because like I was listening to this stuff and some of these songs were like you know these were not the records that you might you know people always stereotype out oh, of the local music scene and everybody sucks or stuff like that no these like a lot of these records were fucking brilliant, you know? And I'm like, why are more people not talking about this stuff or listening to these things? Um, so it was an educational experience for me just doing all Don't that. Don't you have a playlist or something? I started doing the Spotify playlist for that reason because I can only interview one band at a time on the podcast, but I'm like, there's way more out here than that. I need to be doing more to like try and get this music out. Mm-hmm. So I'd get songs from all these other bands. I'd start putting them on Spotify playlists. I'd start putting them out on my Instagram, like, hey, check this out. And, and what's the name of this playlist for people to check out? Um, I, so I have a couple of Spotify playlists Ooh. going on now. Um, the first one is called Seattle Bands That Aren't Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Heart, or Alice in Chains. <laughs> Give it like a very clickbaity title like that, you know. And um, that playlist is much more along the lines of like garage, punk, you know, gunk pop, like black ends and, and stuff like that. You know, it's a, a lot um, just darker and heavier musically. And then the other playlist that I have going on is Seattle bands that aren't Fleet Foxes, Band <laughs> of Forces, or Sunny Day Real Estate. And and that one is more um, dream pop, psychedelic, soft indie, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a Seattle hip hop one. It's called Seattle Hip Hop That Isn't Macklemore. Hey. There yeah. we go. Yeah, and I got, I mean, on that one, I got Lived. I got um, Rel Be Free, Stas the Boss. Like, all the, like again, great records. Yeah. And I'm listening to this stuff. I'm like, this is, you know, I, I love this. 
Like I'm just doing everything I can to get all these bands out. I have a jazz one too. I have an acoustic one, like all this music that I've come across in the last year. And I'm just trying to sort catalog and curate. Cause right now it's just like, you have this environment where everybody's just putting out music to their social media channels, but there's no, I'm not going to say there's no, like, you know, Ava Walker at KEXP audio Oasis. I mean, she does a lot for like the local scene with her show, but there's really not a whole lot of outlets cataloging and curating this stuff and trying to just make sense of it all. So the the average person that just likes music or want to hear some new music, you know, you could actually give them a record and be like, Oh, you like so-and-so this, that, Oh, check this out. Like, yeah, you did this, you know? So if people are checking out your podcast for the first time, like what is the general type of artist you have on? Is it mostly just bands? Have you gone into rappers or jazz artists at all yet? Or I stick to bands because that's the world that I'm from, you know? And, Mm -hmm. I've definitely, I've done hip hop playlists and stuff like that, but I can't have a, a for real conversation about hip hop with somebody like, I mean, I could, I could talk a little bit, hey, but we can like, talk about hip hop. We can talk a little <laughs> bit, but it, but it's just not, not in the way that I could talk about bands in Seattle, mm-hmm. you know, like, so that's, you know, I stick to the bands because I always felt that again, for one, that's the world that I'm from. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is I always felt like social media kind of gave a promotional advantage to solo artists mm-hmm. because if you're doing your own content, your own social media, you can call all the shots with that. If you're a solo artist, you could just wake up out of bed in the morning like, I'm going to do, do, do a selfie now. And you don't have to like run it by like a whole bunch of people or hopefully you don't. You know, hopefully you're doing all your own stuff. Right. Um, whereas like with bands, if you've ever tried to do social media by committee, I mean, it's a nightmare. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like very hard to find a consensus on that. It's very right. demoralizing too because it's not the reason why you start a band with these people. Yeah. Um, but the thing about it with with social media too is that people are more inclined to follow individuals than they are to follow brands companies i see that bands organizations exactly right? i have like, a yeah. yeah i have a podcast so i have my podcast instagram and then i have my personal instagram. right my right. my personal instagram has less followers than the podcast instagram really and i'll get more likes on my personal instagram than my yeah. podcast instagram just yeah. because it's an people know that when they go to the podcast instagram it's a it's promoting a podcast. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of bands, I will say too, like uh, on the flip side, like a lot of bands I feel like don't really do that right because they don't, they just like, you go to their Instagram or whatever and the whole thing is like, feels like an advertisement. Yeah. The music. Just flyer, so, flyer, yeah, flyer. Yeah, flyer, flyer. Yeah, exactly. You know what <laughs> I'm talking about. It's like, and so it doesn't feel like they're actually doing like, like being social on it. Like everything's right. an advertisement. So I do think that like some of that is like on the bands too, but but it sucks you have to do that in the first place, you know. It does because the thing about marketing through content is if you have a band that's already working day jobs just to keep their head above water financially while they're doing this yeah. and then making the music is like a full-time job on top of that. Yeah. And now you got to be a full-time influencer on top of that. It's just like, uh, I hope to God you don't have a spouse or a love. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> something's got to give at that point. Oh, God. You know what I mean? There's just like no way. Oh, um, it's very difficult to to try and bite all that off. So, you know, with Raised on Rhythm, I always just wanted to try and create a platform that helped even the playing field a little bit with that. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to do one that's like just for the bands, you know. Um, there are solo artists that I talk to and I have on that um, are like in orbit, especially of that scene, like Danny Denial. Um, you know, Danny's great with, you know, what he's doing for the community and everything with Bazooka Fest and everything like mm-hmm. that. And even with Danny, like he's had, you know, like Dark Smith, like, you know, he's been in bands before and he's very much in the orbit of like the DIY, like punk scenes in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So again, 
solo artist by branding for sure but he's like right. yeah you can come on you can get this it's cool <laughs> you know so, so where's the martial law yeah. band fall into like the band community because he's in the hip-hop community marshall is yeah. actually a rapper he has the shout band, out to though. marshall he's he's the best man like I, martial law band i will say man i have not seen another band in seattle with the hustle that band has mm. they work you know, like every damn, you know, weekend, like they're out, they're doing something, you know, they have Fremont Fridays over the summer, you know, they're just putting out content like Marshall's all up on Instagram, you know, the motivational stuff like every day, yeah. <laughs> stuff like I, I, I still see it. And like, you know, I, I think they've really just created such a lane of their own at this point because of all the work that they put in, all the community building that they did, frankly, just for their, like, for their following. I don't know that their following would necessarily translate to like other bands in Seattle because like other bands might be in kind of a different lane. Right. But to me, it's like you can't deny the work that they put in for what they do. I mean, they work their asses off and you know, they reap the benefit of it, man, because everything with them is like DIY. You know, they just play and they pull up and they play anywhere. I remember like last fall in 2020 when they had like the, the jelly bean, you know, yes, they built, sir. Like, the trailer like on the back of the, um, I'm back of the SUV where they were just driving that thing all over the city, like jamming. And I remember the first time I saw it in Columbia City, like I was just hanging down there one day. Um, and God, it was such a trip. I, I knew Dan Ray, she was down there too at the time. And, and we were just hanging out by the parade float. And, mm. and Dan, you know, Dan Ray just looks at me like, you want to jump on this thing? And I'm like, <laughs> mm, yeah, I feel like a little weird. Like, should I be doing this, you know, or whatever? But, you know, but Chris King was there and like everybody was cool with it. So like, fuck it, you know, I'll, I'll jump down, <laughs> just duck over here on the side. I'm not trying to bring attention to myself. But, God, we rode that thing all the way through like Columbia City with them up Rainier, you know, and overall crossed on Jackson and then going up first. And they're just like playing music the whole way. And like, it was, man, it was like gnarly. And I'm like, there's no other band in Seattle that even comes close to that level of like drive as far as trying to get their music out there, you know? True. So um, what is the main sound that you'd say is coming out of bands in the Seattle area? There's a few different sounds. You know, you, you have, um, I actually have another playlist that's again, martial law bands on there, but it's more focused on the, on the kind of like jam, you know, just like that funk mixed with hip hop and rock and like all mm -hmm. these flavors like there, there's bands like martial law band and fast nasties and modus is another uh, band that I have on that playlist. Um, and th so that's like that sphere of things. And then you also have, you know, kind of like the, the post grunge, like garage punk stuff. Um, you know, black ends, um, the kind of shoegazy stuff like, uh, floored faces, one of my favorite bands at the moment in Seattle. Um, you know, and it, yeah, just stuff, you know, very like post-punk kind of stuff. Like I guess Antonioni, I might put him in that category to some degree. Um, uh, I'm, I'm like rattling off. It's like all these bands flying through my head. You know what's crazy for <laughs> yeah. me though? I feel yeah. like I feel like I'm doing something right when I get like, yeah. when I'm like in uncomfortable situation, whether it's, yeah. whether it's, whether yeah. uncomfortable is the right word or yeah. like out of my element, maybe yeah. out of my element. Yeah. So yeah. like yeah. when I first started yeah. the podcast, yeah, I didn't know a single artist that people were talking sure. about. Yeah. And then as I've grown, I've, I'll look back at the old podcast and be like, oh, I've, I've had that guy on or yeah. whoever, or, yeah. oh, I still need to reach out to that person or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like I appreciate you saying, telling me all these names because I don't know a single one of these names whatsoever, yeah. but I'm going to meet all you guys eventually and I'm very excited about that. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll send you the playlist because it's really, like I said, it's just you listen to the music. That's the biggest thing. 
you know, a lot of people know the names, but right. it's like, man, like, like, tell me your favorite songs or like. But what know, are the just, genres coming out? Like, what are the main? Would, it, would you say the like we just did? I have a second podcast called yeah. the BBC Podcast, okay. yep. and today yeah. we just released our episode. It's a conspiracy theory podcast, but this episode wasn't really that yeah. conspiracy theory field. It was yeah. more a prediction, and it was called the return of pop punk okay okay we, yeah, yeah so we've been seeing like a upward trend of pop punk from rap yeah uh, bands or whatever like is that the main is that a big genre coming out of seattle right now or would you say it's... there's definitely um shout out to gordon college radio because he's doing a huge showcase at Elcor's on this uh saturday night where he's got like a like a dream team of seattle pop punk bands playing this thing and i actually have a playlist for that too seattle pop punk culture Hell yeah. um there's a bunch of bands that i got on there so to try and, and sum it up, I know I, my answer earlier was, you know, maybe a little off, but like trying to sum this up, I would say, I mean, yeah, you got pop punk, you got jam, you got, um, I would say like garage rock, garage punk, um, dream pop, shoegaze. But what does garage mean? Does garage mean you're just a local or I don't know what garage So means. there's, yeah, there's a distinguished there. Like basically there's like garage band in the way a lot of people think of that term where it's just like a band that's just set up in a garage, you mm-hmm. know, just like, and it could be like any genre. And then there's garage rock in, as it refers to like essentially a genre of rock and roll that really had its roots, you know, kind of back in the seventies and stuff. But the whole point was kind of like very stripped down, very like not too pretentious, um, you know, kind of minimal instrumentation. If I had to give specific bands, you know, people like, um, OCs, you know, the OCs, um, garage rock offhand. I don't know. Um, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard to some degree. Um, These names are wild. I know they're wild. The music is wild too. You gotta (laughs) listen to music, man. You know, um, and it's, and it's a whole world and stuff that's like, I think was really popular on the West coast because, you know, when I used to live in the South, some of these bands, it's like, you know, who, you know, it's like they they wouldn't really. What about what type of genre is getting signed the most out of Seattle. Getting signed the most. Hip hop hands down. Well, band-wise. Are there bands? Band-wise. Other but I've also been told that see, bands aren't looking to get signed, but I feel like they see, are. See, that's the thing. Well, they are and <laughs> they, they want aren't. money. They, everybody wants <laughs> everybody wants money. Yeah, for sure. They are and they aren't because the thing about getting signed, and this was this is what a lot of people don't realize about record deals and getting signed. You're borrowing their money right. to do your thing. Now, if you're borrowing their money, they're calling the shots. Got it. You know, and the problem with a lot of bands, you know, not the problem with a lot of bands. The thing I love about a lot of bands, frankly, is like when you're doing this stuff, you're making the music you want to make the way you want to make it, you know, and, and you're doing it to express a feeling. It's a very, you know, genuine thing on your part. So you can't let nobody call your shots in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you really can't have it. You don't want that to be the case. Otherwise, it just becomes a job. And if you're going to work a job, you hate, you know, go to work at Amazon or Microsoft or something like right. that. You know what I mean? So. In terms of getting signed, it doesn't always make business sense for a band because why are we going to borrow all this money from somebody and then we don't know if we're going to repay it or not or if we'll be able to repay it with the amount of like live revenue, record sales, you know, that we can honestly get. I'm just speaking strictly from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially in this day and age where you can do so much on your own, like if you're putting your music out there. If you can say, you know, if you have like even a semi decent day job, right, and you could save up couple thousand bucks honestly some of these record deals that like bands will get especially you know, on the indie level and stuff like that they're not worth that much 
then what's yeah. the next step then? Like if you're not going to be signed to a record label, yeah. how are you, you going to make a money where you can completely forget about your day job? Sure. Never have to do anything that's yeah. even part-time. That's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. You know? And well, the thing about that, I mean, first off, you got to figure out like what that number actually looks like, mm. you know, in terms of like what's a specific dollar amount. Okay. What about this? What if you yeah. wanted to make at least a hundred thousand a year? At least a hundred thousand a year. You're aiming high right there. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, a hundred thousand a year. All right. Well, you know, yes. that's your number. So now you got to break it down as far as like what amount of money you're going to make off a show, merchandising you know, album sales, stuff like that. The reason I don't like looking at it like that is because those are all things that are very much out of your control. I can't, are they? Yeah. I can't, because I can't control, you could do something like art that's very genuine. I can't force people to like my art. I can't mm. force them to value my music. I can't force them to buy a record. Those are goals, excuse me. No worries. Those are goals that are all very much outside of my control. You know, I can work and I can, I know I can like create the record and I could try to make like the best t-shirt I can that I think is going to sell or something. There's stuff there that is within my control and is within a band's control, but you really don't like set that as your goal because you're almost always going to be disappointed because most of the time, like that's not going to happen. Like you're going to put a record out and people just don't have the response that you were hoping they had or something like that. If you're doing something because you actually love doing it and this is like very genuine art on your part, mm -hmm then it's like you have to realize that might be all you ever get out of it. But if you're doing that and you're really doing this from a place of like, I really love what I'm doing and I really want to be doing this, right. then it doesn't matter how many times you lose, you still feel like you won. Even if you're broke, even if you're working a day job, whatever the case is, like you still won. You know, that like that is the feeling that you get out of it. And likewise, if you're doing something that you hate, you can't stand or you're just like, oh, we're just making this because like we think this is going to sell or something like that. You know, no matter how many times you win with that, you know, even if it does work out, mm. you still end up very empty inside. And there are people that, you know, have that problem in the music business and they end up turning to all sorts of substances and bad habits trying to fill that void in their heart that comes from doing that where it's like, okay, yeah, this is working business wise, but this feels very, very hollow to me. It doesn't feel like I'm really, you know, fulfilled off this. One, one of the things I love, there's a quote from um, Kim from Soundgarden once said years ago that it's like one of the things about the Seattle music scene, this is something I fell in love with, with the Seattle music scene. Mm -hmm. Music up here was always a very genuine thing. It was something, it wasn't really something that people went into doing because it was just like, oh, I want to get like signed or I want to get famous, this, that, and the third. It was something that they did to make it through the winter without killing themselves, basically. Right. It was something that, you know, it's a community thing. It's a thing that you do to like bring people together and meet people, have a good time, like socially and stuff like that. And and beyond that, like if you're getting that out of it, as long as you can make like a minimal amount of money to support yourself through like a day job or something like that, right. then the rest of your life is just so enriched by that. But then I feel like- yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. like if you're a rapper, then you're fucked. Because if they're not, <laughs> first of all, it's super oversaturated. No one wants sure. to buy your merch. Yeah. Unless you're collaborating with someone that's like. Yeah. But the thing, see, here's the thing about it, man. It's, it's like, if you're thinking about it from a commercial standpoint of how do I make this amount or that amount, you're probably going to look to the people that are already successful in that front, you know, and what, like, what are they doing? And maybe I might try to copy off them. But the problem is by the time that you figured out what that is, the trend's already moved on. Huh. The trend's already moved on to the next thing. So if you try to copy that and you try to do it, probably ain't going to work for you because everybody's already seen that already. You know. But then what's your mindset? Like, are, what is you, what are, you said you don't like people asking what are your yeah. goals in five years, but you, yeah. like, what are your goals with your music then? Like, are you happy? But do you, 
Do you feel yeah. like you're stuck or how do you feel? I don't feel stuck. I feel like every day I get to wake up and I get to make the music I want to make with the people I love working with the way we want to play. And we get to go out and we get to have fun. And like every day, that's my life. I get to wake up and do stuff like that. Yeah. I do other stuff too, you know, aside of that. I don't mind. I mean, a lot of the work that I do, even like rideshare driving, I kind of enjoy, you right. know, like I, I look at it as like, I get paid to drive all over the city and eat lunch at different places and talk to different kind of people. Like I, I enjoy the work that I get to do on all fronts, you know, and that love for me is like something that's like really taking care of me because there were times when I was younger, I'll put it this way, you know, when I was a teenager and, you know, my early twenties yeah. and I had those kind of like rock star dreams and stuff like that. And of course, you know, they, they don't happen for a variety of reasons. But I like want to tell people, yeah, yeah, everyone look me in my eyes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah These yeah. rock star dreams can happen. But you guys need to know what it takes. I feel like people, the, the, the age of someone just walking up to you or just sure. something, some magical wizard coming and solving your dreams is false. Sure. You need to have a strict like business plan. And like if rock, if rock, this is my biggest thing. Sure. This is a stereotype too. Though. Absolutely. Go for it. I feel like a lot of rock and roll artists or bands decide not to have like relationships because they want to focus in on all their music mm -hmm. but if you're saying bands don't want to be signed to a record label if you're going through life just making music and you turn 50 60 years old and you're still sure. performing yeah and you're not in a relationship then what what what, what then like you don't have someone that you could have just shared you could have shared that 50 like well let's say you meet someone when you're 20 or something. Yeah, you could have yeah, had that 30 yeah. years of experience with yeah. someone and still played music, but you could have still been with someone you love. Sure. So hindsight is always 20, 20 with that. You know, you're always going to look back in your life and any big decision like that, it's going to be, I always call it like the ghost ship that's riding along your side. You know, if you're on the sea, on your boat, and then there's yeah. like this ghost ship right next to you of like, what could have been if I had done this or that in the third? Christmas past. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's always going to be like that with any decision you make in life, no matter what. Um, but for me, it's like I always look at it as like if success is getting everything you want, happiness is actually wanting everything that you get. Hmm. And in this country especially, I feel like we have this kind of what I call the success industrial complex. Okay. Which is like people's lives. A lot of people are miserable. You know, they're strung out. They're struggling. Like I get it. You know, like it's a very real problem. But we sort of tell them that if you're successful – at whatever it is you're doing, it could be sports, music, you know, whatever, medicine, law. If you're successful at that, then that'll make all those problems go away. You know, mm. you'll finally be happy, right? Something like that. We tell people that. It's kind of like a motivator, a driver. But then here's what happens. You know, most of the time, like they don't get there, frankly. But then even if they do get there, they're still feeling very unfulfilled because then they get there and it's just like, well, wait a second, I thought I was supposed to feel happy now. You know, I thought I was supposed to feel like, fulfilled but the thing is they yeah. get there with all that money but then they don't know who to talk to to like like what do you do once you have that money like there's not resources so, in in our specific community of music absolutely. yeah there's not any place you can go once you reach a certain level of success or you want to sure. reach a certain level of yeah. success where you can deal like talk to people and express how you're feeling and then like build together like you just have to find yeah. people in the scene versus there being yeah. like a hub or something you can reach out to for help or whatever it is yeah i'm not sure if we're quite talking about the same thing but i, I think that you know I, I would say you want to take the job that you would take even if you were independently wealthy you know, the job that you would still want to do if you woke up in the morning and I had like more than enough money that I needed in the bank, because that's going to be the job you're actually happy at, the job that you're actually fulfilled with. You'll still want to do it no matter what. 
Like there's people like that have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank, billions of dollars worth of stock options. They still Mm -hmm. wake up every day and want to go do what they do because it's the process. It's the process that they're in love with, not the proceeds. The Mm -hmm. the proceeds are nice too. Don't get me wrong. So so there's certain processes makes them money. It's, It's the process that makes you feel fulfilled, that you actually enjoy what you get to do. That's what makes you want to do it. Right. You know, and you get a love out of that, that nothing else can compete with. If that's actually what you want to be doing. There's people like that, like, you know, you could think of, you know, like some nerdy tech nerd types. And we just, a lot of people like see those people and they're like, oh, well, they're just all about the money. I mean, yeah, money matters to them, but it's really not what got them where they were at. What got them where they were at was just, they were this person that really just loved sitting there like working on computer code, you know, Mm -hmm. or, or doing this, that, and the third. It just so happens that they had a love and a passion that in this particular society translated to lots and lots of money because it was valuable for others. Right. You know, I would say that like if I had wanted to be like a firefighter, for instance, you know, and like you could have a very happy and fulfilled life doing that. You probably won't make millions of dollars at it. Right. But at the end of the day, like when you have to lay your head down on the pillow, it's like the money and all that doesn't matter. It's, you know, you have to like live with yourself at the end of the day. And when you're actually doing the stuff that you enjoy, like you're very fulfilled and at peace with that stuff. And the money's kind of like secondary as long as you got enough to eat, of course. Yeah. You know, no, I believe in that. I'm not, yeah. I feel like when I ask these questions sure. to artists, yeah, make it seem, it makes it come off like I'm some like mon- money hungry guy or something. No, it's, but, but you're, it, listen, just, yeah. Like you're hung, like, there's nothing wrong with being hungry. Don't get me wrong. Right. I, I love that. You know, like it's, it's good to have that energy too, for sure. I just you feel know? like people, I don't know. Yeah. People, you can, if in the art scene specifically, though, sure. I feel like you can make money. Yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe a hundred thousand dollars is too much of a reach for like an artist, well, but maybe it's not, but there should be a level where you can make money just to what you love, but you know how you're getting that money and not just banking on, okay, hopefully people are buying this merch or hopefully people are streaming. Like yeah. there's just gotta be like some solid foundation versus just being this independent artist and like not yeah. knowing for sure. Like, you know, man, if you're looking for a solid foundation like that, you're in the wrong business with music. I but I don't, I don't think it's gotta be. Though. That's the thing. It doesn't have to be. And that's I, why. I, I, yeah. That's why I brought up the, the hub analogy. I, yeah, I, I'm on the train. I'm following what you're sure. saying. Sure. Yeah, I, th- I think for instance, like I'll give you an example. Like when I used to do like the metal some gig in Atlanta, right? Like that mm-hmm. was a pretty solid foundation, like financially or otherwise. Right. You know, like I made it. Like I was living the dream. I was making like a living, playing music at that point. But the setup was all like you know. I, I just I wasn't that into what I was doing. I, I enjoyed the job. Don't get me wrong. Like when I was on it, but always in the back of my head, I was just like, I don't know if playing Mr. Brightside night after night for the rest <laughs> of my thirties is like really the best use of that time. Like I said, I didn't feel like I was done yet in terms of original bands. Like I still wanted to like do more stuff with that, that that particular gig wasn't really allowing me to do. Yes. I achieved the dream or, you know, whatever that vision was, you know, that I had when I was younger. But then, like I say, it's very possible to get there you're just not that happy with what's going on because when you're not experiencing that, when you're not living that day to day, you might not even know what that is. There's people who go to law school like that. Never spent a day in a law office. Right. You know, I was like, do you actually understand what you're wishing for with that? You know what I mean? Like, so what's your overall dream with like goal with your life then? What's my goal with my life? Kind of do the same stuff I'm already doing right now. It's just like I say, just doing the stuff I enjoy. I've already like, I've, I've hit that goal. I keep doing it. And there's, you know, there's other things I want to do. Like right. as, as far as like, music like i you know I'd, I'd love to tour more i'd love to you know do this that and the third but i'm not tripping if like a lot of that stuff doesn't happen you know because like i'm already like i'm good with where i'm at so just you know? making music's fulfilling for you 
Yeah, it is playing drums specifically. There we go. Yeah, that's always that's always been that way from like the time I was a kid. Playing drums was always a way that, you know, growing up kind of a socially awkward kid in a place that I didn't really feel like I fit in or belonged. You know, that was how I felt that I could transcend that. So you keep saying you didn't feel like you belonged, and yeah, why is that? Were you like a was there a lot of black guys and you're only a white kid, or what was it? <laughs> <laughs> getting warmer um <laughs> it, it wasn't even about that it was just like like socially you know i grew up you know my family was really just my mom and my dad down there and if you were in miami you know your mom and dad lived there your cousins all lived there your aunts and uncles all lived there. you had like extended family and there were big social networks that were happening with that right and my family wasn't religious either, so they didn't really have anything, you know, like a church network or like uh, there wasn't really a lot of people around us. I kind of grew up kind of a loner for that reason. Mm. You know, I, I had a few friends when I was younger. I'm not going to say like I had none, but it was just a place where socially I, I really I didn't feel like I was favored or like I had to like work a lot harder to just get people to take notice or anything like that. I think it was kind of a blessing because like that work ethic and that fire that that kind of instilled in me, I've carried that over to a lot of other things I've done in my life, Right. you know? So it's not all bad, but eventually like I knew like, man, like what if I just was living in a place or doing something where I didn't feel like I was having to swim upstream the whole time. And I just had a lot more mental bandwidth to offer to like whatever I was working on instead of feeling like I was, I was having to like just swim upstream just to, you know, survive basically. Mm -hmm. So that was a motivation for wanting to get out of Florida. I never had the balls when I was a kid to be like that train hopping, you know, kind of dude that was going to like run away from home when I was 14 or stuff like that. You know, I, I just never had really like a social structure with that. But you knew you wanted to leave. Even outside of, I, I felt like, like life had to be better. <laughs> like, like it couldn't be this miserable all the time. Like in Miami. So, like out. So you wanted yeah. to move like outside of the state. Was that always a goal, or just if, outside of your city? If there was such a thing as growing up in completely the wrong place for your energy and your vibe, that was me growing up in Miami. Wow. Like, you know, so I felt like you know, even when I used to come out to Seattle, like first time I came out here, like 2016. I'd come out of here like when I was very young because my dad's family actually is from Washington State um, originally around there. They go back. Wow. But when I came out to Seattle in 2016, it was just like, whoa, like this is cool. Like there's something going on. Like I feel just more at peace here, at ease. Some people it might be the opposite. Like I know people that grow up in Seattle and they're just like, oh, I hate it here. And get out. So, hey, you got a whole country. Like go for it. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> wherever, you know, wherever you feel at home. So. I guess you could say I kind of like found my way to, to this place where I feel very at home, you know, here in this city and in this community, you know, versus like where I grew up. Still, it was a cool experience to have growing up there to get all the, the bullshit out of the way down there. Not all the bullshit, but, you know, like have those formative experiences and those, you know, while and out moments in a place where like if I pissed off a bunch of people, I wasn't going to be stuck there forever. You know, yeah. it's like there didn't really matter. You know, I could learn my lessons. I could learn all my life lessons down there or, or a lot of them. And then by the time I got to a place where I actually wanted to be at, like I was much more mature and, and just calmer as a person, as a human being. I was fucking nuts when I was a teenager. <laughs> Do you, do you miss Atlanta or at all? Atlanta was a cool place. If, if, you told, if you told me I had to spend the rest of my life in Atlanta, I definitely, um, I definitely wouldn't be unhappy like mm. living in Atlanta. Like that was a cool spot, you know? So it's like, you asked me like, you know, being the white kid growing up in Miami, like it, was, it wasn't quite like that. You know what I mean? Cause like Atlanta is a very diverse place too. It was like, it's never been an issue with like me living in diverse places. I welcome that. I enjoy that. Right. You know, it was more just like, I guess, 
you know, when I was growing up in Miami, it's just like nobody really wanted to talk to you, you know, because you mm. just you didn't look the right way or, you, you know, you didn't know the right people and nobody wanted to talk to you. So you really couldn't get to know the right people or something like that. That's You're crazy. just kind of like off on your own in this like weird little world, you know, playing rock. But, you know, get up to Seattle I'm a lot more at home. Now, actually, my parents still live in Miami and I enjoy visiting down there for that reason because I can go down there and it's just like, oh, you know, I can like experience the best of it, you know, and then when I'm like starting to you know get bored or whatever it's like all right time to go back to seattle i'm good yeah. now <laughs> well we're all weirdos in here in seattle so exactly you know like i mean it's much more my speed up here you know there we go that's cool well i, uh, I appreciate you opening up about your uh, community here and yeah. i hope to become more of part of this band community and i, I hope to have you out of here too man just, just as soon as you hit 21 don't worry like, i hit you with all the shows and stuff like yeah, that yeah marshall's, you know, so. marshall's been giving me shit about that oh, he, really? he thought i was like 25 for some reason so like anytime you like <laughs> anytime he sees me now he's like what what is this little boy doing here shout like, out oh, to marshall god. man he's like oh my god so what are what's some advice <laughs> that you have for uh, up-and-coming artists creators influencers oh my god if anybody's still listening to this right now man like you know do what you do because you're into it and because you don't know how to do anything else you know because at the end that love might be all you ever get out of it you know and as long as you still get that you're happy no matter what if success is getting everything you want happiness is actually wanting everything that you get never confuse the two you know and other than that I don't know man just have fun and make music <laughs> There we go. <laughs> what is the easiest way for people to reach you? Uh, I'm all on the Instagram at raised on rhythm. Instagram is where the party's at. I post Seattle show calendars twice a week. Anytime I'm doing something with the podcast, one of my bands, it's all up on there in the stories, maybe even a meme once in a while. Um, sometimes I post my, post my Italian cooking on there too. There know? we so, go. You know, like, yeah, exactly like that. Um, Twitter at raised on rhythm. I'm not on there that much though, honestly. Um, Facebook, RaisedOnRhythm.com for the podcast. The link tree is all on my Instagram. And you can come out to the free show that I'm doing mm -hmm. on Wednesday, September 8th. It's also my 35th birthday that night. Happy birthday. It's gonna, thank you. Going on at the substation. It's going to be Rainbow Coalition Death Cult, which is Nicole from Black Ends and Maya Marie from Stereosana. It's their new thrash metal project. I'm stoked to have them on that bill. Like, they're great. Uh, Rainbow Coalition, Death Cult, Blade Palace, that is the band I'm in, one of the bands I'm in, and then Oh My Eyes is kicking off tonight. It's going to be a free show. Bring your proof of vax, though. <laughs> Make sure you got vax. Don't come out if you don't have proof of vax, bro. There we go. <laughs> this is the NAS Podcast with... Nate Lewis. And we did it.